Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 24th, 2013. This is one of those weeks where the uh, the stories are coming in in, in spits and spurts. And uh, <laughs> I can't keep up. I just can't do it. Tomorrow I'm going to try to catch up on some of the uh, the other inaugural religious stories. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Just kind of a, wor- a word of warning here, and that is, is that although I attempt to keep up with what's happening out there, there are times when doing this program and producing this program that uh, that y- y- you end up getting a backlog. And, and the reason why you get a backlog of things that you need to address is because they come in. Sometimes, you know, they trickle in, the, you know, the, the, the religious news stories out there. And I don't always cover what's the current thing in the news. Uh, but I do try to keep an eye out on it and and weave it into the things I'm trying to teach. But from time to time, you know, you just get. You know, everything hits you all at once and you're left with a big pile and you you look at the pile going, boy, that's important. And boy, I sure would like to get to that. And yep, I'm going to have to address that. And then you look at the you're, <laughs> you're going, how am I going to do this? Yeah, And the reason because here's the deal. I just don't cover on fighting for the faith. You know, the the uh, religious news du jour um, in, in every edition, at least unless I say so, and there are times when I say so, I try, I'm working on a theme. Okay. Working on a theme. This, today's edition, in fact, you can kind of, you can kind of tie it into two different things. Um, but, uh, theme number one today actually has kind of a, uh, there's two themes. Theme number one has to do with how people use God's word. What in, in fact, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking. You remember we did the um, Cindy Jacobs updates, you know, regarding what the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders uh, were up to. Well, she, you know, she was very excited to name James Gall as one of the members of the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders. So we're going to be listening to. Um, a, a, a prophecy supposedly that James Gall received from God the Holy Spirit in the name of the video is Seven Clear Words for 2013. And what's fascinating about this is that um, is his use of Scripture, okay? And what I mean by that is is that it's, it's a weird use of Scripture because 
um, it's the same kind of thing we heard from Cindy Jacobs. You know, here they got the supposed prophecy or word of of what's coming down the prophetic pike, and uh, and you know, and then there's biblical passages that some are supposedly used to support it. And then when you look up the biblical passage, you scratch your head and go, <laughs> "Yeah, I'm just not seeing the connection here." So. Today's episode, there's kind of two things I'm working on here. One is a use of scripture. Now, for to kind of back that up a second way, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you are aware of the fact that today I sent out a, uh, a link to an Andy Stanley uh, leadership article. Okay, and this was a, a few years back, and the the question that he's answering in in the uh, leadership article is: Should we stop talking about pastors as shepherds? Okay, and the word shepherds is in air quotes. Should we stop talking about pastors as shepherds? And his response is absolutely. And then he makes some claims where he's trying. Well, at least on the surface, he is making it sound like he's making a biblical argument, but he's not. And so his, you know, use of scripture, or at least somehow referencing it doesn't jive with what the biblical passages say. In fact, um, he flat out contradicts what Scripture says about this, which then it gives me the ability, you know, looking at the, how they're misusing Scripture to, you know, in, you know how, do you, you know, how do you do this? Then what we're going to do is you know, we're going to kind of launch into a second topic today, you know, kind of, kind of a second theme, and that is... Talking about well, if we're gonna if we're gonna rightly handle God's word, how are we supposed to look at leadership in the church? What is the right way of looking at it? Well, in order to do that, we have to employ sound, solid, objective biblical hermeneutics. That means you must let clear passages govern. Okay, you don't, and, and this kind of a, is building off of what we talked about last, you know, normally I don't ever talk about the themes quite this openly, but I think it's important that you know what the themes I'm trying to work on here today. So we're going to use, we're going to use, uh, we're going to look at the Bible and we're going to look at clear passages that talk about the leadership model that's revealed in scripture. Okay, because the leadership model that we're getting from the seeker driven movement yeah, I'm sorry, but this is straight up the Fuhrer principle, which I think I'm going to explain a little bit today. Okay, and, you know, uh, from an unpublished work that I'm working on, uh, I'm going to read a part of it to you so that you kind of get where I'm going with this. So leadership is going to be one of the the foil topics that we're going to look at, but it's again going back to this concept of how do you use God's word rightly? What is proper hermeneutics? You know, and what you know when we talk about. What's the role or what's the job or the office of pastor? What passages are we to go to? And then to kind of, you know, to kind of put the, the cherry, on, you know, the whipped cream and the cherry on top of this program, our sermon review today, we're going to be going back in time uh, to New Spring Church from, I think, the year 2007 and listening to a sermon by one of the, uh, one of the other teaching pastors there at New Spring. He's a very close friend of uh, Perry Nobles, and the name of the sermon is Protecting Your Pastor. Protecting Your Pastor. And this is absolutely a hermeneutical train wreck that also blends into it 
the false non-biblical leadership concepts of the seeker-driven megachurch, uh, uh, you know, ecclesiastical model. And so I thought that, you know, the two would work together. So this, today is not a singular theme. There's kind of two things at the same time with a foundation and the other thing built on. Does that make sense? (laughs) This is what we're going to be doing today. Ah, Anyway, and then, and then, by the way, I'm fully aware of the Rabbi Khan thing at uh, the Obama inauguration, and I'm fully aware of the sermon that was preached um, as part of the inauguration from that uh, United Methodist guy. And wow, <laughs> there, there are some things that have got to be addressed. And so, uh, I'm gonna. I, my intention is to cover some of that tomorrow. And ho- ho- you know, with that United Methodist pastor, I forget that his name doesn't come to mind at the moment, but I don't have it o- open in front of me on my computer. But uh, there's some things <laughs> that he said in that sermon that just makes me go, "Who oh boy, who oh boy, this is not good, not good at all." And uh, and so I think it behooves us to spend a little bit of time looking at the Fuhrer Principle. So we'll look at it today, kind of look at it a little bit tomorrow. And uh, and you're going, what's the Fuhrer Principle? Oh, yeah, it's the leadership model employed by fascists. Yeah, I know it's controversial. I get it, but this is what I'm working on uh, scholastically. So you, you just got to suffer through it. But hopefully you'll find it, well, eye-opening because no joke, okay, what we're dealing with in the seeker-driven movement is a leadership model developed by Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker was fascistic in his ideology, okay? Now, he totally believes the Nazis screwed it up and that they didn't get it right. And the reason why they didn't get it right is because they were materialists. But he's as a communitarian, which is the new term for fascism. And so communitarianism is a um, it's kind of like fascism 2.0. And uh, so the idea is is that communitarianism has as its, it's the same ideology and worldview as the fascists, but um, they, they're not materialists. They actually believe in a spiritual component, and that man has both you know, that there's both matter and soul. And this is actually very important to them because they believe, but by hanging on to these these kind of this dualistic idea that they that they can employ the the governmental. Um, ideas and societal structure that was beta tested and failed by the uh, the fascists, but do it without killing everybody. I think that's a fair way of explaining what the, uh, the communitarians are up to. And unfortunately, the seeker-driven movement, many of its leaders are steeped in communitarian concepts, and they have they have basically developed an ecclesiastical fewer principle. Again, I understand that this is controversial, and if you haven't already listened to my lecture that I delivered, you know, in May of last year, and I've recently made reference to it, the name of it is Resistance is Feudal, You Will Be Assimilated by the Community. You need to listen to that lecture. Uh, you go to the May 11th episode of Fighting for the Faith of, of 2012 and uh, and listen to it, you know, look at the uh, I have my PowerPoint slides. I actually have uh, homework reading for you to f- further read up on the concept, but all of the stuff is important for you to kind of get get grasp onto because what we're dealing with in the seeker driven movement is a foreign, non biblical, completely alien, and very hostile and dangerous leadership model that is doesn't have its origin in God's word or the mind of God or what God has revealed regarding the the office of pastor. 
No, it's the ecclesi- it's an ecclesiastical fewer princip. So again, this is going to be a controversial episode of Fighting for the Faith. I apologize. I'm not trying to be controversial for the sake of controversy. And I always, you know, when I talk about this topic, I always have this caveat. That's this. I am not an ideologue. Okay, I'm not. And so I could totally be out to lunch on this. But if you're going to take me on and say, okay, Chris is. He's completely out to lunch on this. I disagree with him. Okay, it's not enough for you to send me an email saying I disagree with you. You're a gunky head. Do you see that's ad hominem? Okay, what I need you to do if you're going to actually take on the idea, you need to do the research. You need to be familiar with who the major uh, researchers are out there on this topic and their writings, what's going on, how this is being discussed academically, and provide for me a well-documented, substantiated counter-argument based in ev- with evidence. Otherwise, it's not helpful, okay? Fully aware I could be wrong. However, nobody at this point has even remotely been able to come close to showing that what, I've, the, the, what I'm putting out there as a thesis is incorrect. In fact, more and more people are sending me more and more evidence to substantiate my thesis. So anyway, you get what I'm saying. So with that, I think we should just dive right into the program. So, you, you, you know, I, again, I don't normally talk about the themes I'm working on, but I think it's important that I kind of lay them out for you because they, they work together. Again, it's it's how, you know, people wrongly use God's word and then using the, you know, the, the kind of the foundation working from that. We're going to take a look at, at the, the topic of leadership within the church. So the two I'm blending them together into kind of a, a dual. It's think of it as a sword. It's got two cutting edges. Today's episode of fighting for the faith is just like a sword. It's got two cut. <laughs> yeah. Probably not the best analogy. Anyway, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, take all of the proper precautions. And of course, if you want to put your fuzzy bunny slippers on, please do so now they will enhance your listener experience. And um, yeah, for this first segment, probably tinfoil pyramid hat would be good too. Here we go. So, um, are you looking for seven clear words from God the Holy Spirit for the year 2013? You've come to the right place. James Gall, uh, whom Cindy Jacobs claims is one of the major voices in the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders, is here to give you seven clear words for the year 2013. Yeah, here we go. Hey, this is James Gall of Encounters Network and with Prayer Storm International. And I want to just give you a little bit of a prophetic preview of uh, 2013 and beyond. Oh, I can hardly wait. You know, I've been, see, I drink a lot of tea during the day. In fact, I, I really love Earl Grey. It's one of my favorite teas out there. And what's weird is that from time to time, you know, like my, you know, I'll get like little tea leaves at the bottom of my, uh, my teacup. And this is really sad. I mean, I totally failed my my class on how to read tea leaves. So there, I'm sure my tea leaves are trying to give me some kind of a prophetic message, but yeah, I just don't speak that language. So I, it's so good that James Gall here, one of the members of the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders, is here to give me seven clear words for 2013. Aren't you excited? I sure am. And I'm going to do this in a very simple format, and this is obviously video right now, but then I'll have a fuller write-up article 
that complements this video, and it's simply called Seven Clear Words for the New Year. So, Father, thank you for this time and blessings upon it in Jesus' name. Number one, it is a time where the door to the harvest is open. The So this is, okay, so I better get something to write with here. Okay, so uh, the, the door to the harvest is, oh, oh. Why would there be a door to the harvest? Yeah, no. See, when I've traveled around and seen farmlands, I haven't exactly seen farmers walking through doors to to harvest their. Yeah, I'm a little confused. I didn't say the great harvest, but to a harvest it is open. Luke ten two, Matthew nine thirty eight. Okay, hang on a second here. Luke ten two. <laughs> to get my Bible open here. Boy, he's just throwing these out quickly here. Hang on a second here. Luke 10. All right, 2. Okay, so, I mean, he's he, got, he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, well, um, can, can I just kind of point out the obvious? I, I could have read that. You know, just like at any old time, I could have read it yesterday or today or tomorrow or whatever, and um, it would have made perfect sense, and I wouldn't have need needed James Gall to help me. But see, the thing is, Luke ten two doesn't say that the door to the harvest for twenty thirteen is open. Um, it's, Jesus is making a different point. Weird that you would reference uh, a Bible passage like that. Okay, and Joel three thirteen. Okay, hang on, Joel three thirteen. Joel, hang on. I'm glad I got a computerized Bible, though, by the way. Joel 3.13. Okay, here we go. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in the tread, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow, for there is, for their evil is great. Um, that sounds like um, it might deal with judgment there. Um, and again, it has nothing to do with God opening a door to a harvest in 2013. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. It is a time of the door of the harvest being open for such a time as this. And this came to me in an experience where a door actually opened, a wind blew through. I turned around to hear and see the door and the wind and the Holy Spirit. I said, what is this? And the Holy Spirit said, the door to the harvest is now open. Now, are you sure that wasn't just some kind of an after effect, maybe due to any medications that you might be taking, or maybe you were experiencing low blood sugar? I mean, are you, you know, pre-diabetic or anything like that? Because, yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm just not seeing any connection between your so-called vision and these particular passages. Second, I'd like to say, according to Romans 14, 7. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. All right, Romans, I gotta get out from Romans 14, Bible gymnastics today. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Um, it starts with a preposition. Um, can we get a little context there? Hang on a second here. Let's add a little context. Let's see what we got here. Okay, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. 
While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Okay, got it. I got the context here. Okay, so what's the second word here, James? It is a time of releasing the kingdom of peace. Mm-hmm. Hang on. Okay. So word number one is the door to the harvest is open. Time of releasing i'm writing this down releasing the kingdom of peace um what does that verse in romans have to do okay now romans fourteen seven says the kingdom of god is not meat nor drink but righteousness peace and joy in the holy spirit and i believe it's the time for us to be uh, accessing, activating, and releasing the kingdom of peace that passes all understanding. So can, can I point out the obvious here, James? And that is, is that the Bible doesn't talk about releasing the kingdom of peace. However, we as Christians are called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. I would point you to Romans, uh, uh, not Romans, but Luke 24, I think 46, 47 in there, you know, about proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And then also 2 Corinthians chapter 5 regarding, you know, we are given the ministry of reconciliation, uh, basically letting everyone, everybody in the world know that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. And see, I'm fully aware what the Bible says regarding these things and, um, I don't need you having some kind of experience and then coming around and saying, oh, listen, the Holy Spirit told me it's a time of releasing the kingdom of peace. Um, I'm supposed to be proclaiming the Prince of Peace and the forgiveness of sins, you know, because the Bible tells me this rather clearly. I don't even need you for that. This is very key in this hour. Number three, according to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. The right Hang on. Man, I'm just Bible gymnastics. Proverbs 24, 16. Okay. For four, the righteousness, for righteous, the righteous falls seven times and rises again. Man, this is like a half sentence here. Um, <laughs> hang on. I want to get the context. Um, uh, Proverbs 24, verse 15 begins the sentence. Here's what it says. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not do no violence to his home, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumbles in times of calamity. Okay, so why would you quote starting at verse 16, which is like half of a sentence? <sighs> you know, let's continue. Just might fall down, but they'll get back up because they're resilient and they'll rise back up seven times. So my word for this year is it's restart time i feel like the holy spirit is touching some of you right now and he's touching ministries he's touching cities regions nations and there's been purposes that have come restart time proverbs the verse you quoted proverbs uh, 24 16 it's not restart time and notice he said my word my word for 2013 uh-huh. Well, now we know the origin of it. It's not God, the Holy Spirit. It's you. We continue. Around before, and now they're cyclic, and they're coming back around again, and it is restart time. Yeah, restart time, because 20, Proverbs twenty four sixteen is all about restart time. 
Right. Okay. And it's time to push the restart button. Number four, Joel. Two. Where is the spiritual restart button? Where would I find such a thing? Okay, we're up to word number four. He said Joel, right? Okay, hang on. Let me. Two twenty-eight twenty-nine. Joel twenty-two twenty. Oh, man, this is hard. Hang on. Okay, Joel twenty-two twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Okay, all right. Um, let's. Did he say Joel? I mean, maybe that's not the right way. Hang on a second here. Maybe I heard him wrong. Let me back this up so we got the right. This is that have come around before, and now they're cyclic, and they're coming back around again. Yeah. And it is restart time. Got it. Okay. And it's time to push the restart button. Number four, Joel two twenty-eight twenty. Ah, Joel 2.28. Sorry. <laughs> my bad. Okay. And it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Yeah, we talked about this the other day on Fighting for the Faith. This is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. 29, that he will pour forth his spirit upon all flesh. Again, I'm not saying this is the time of the great harvest, but it is another time of a great outpouring. And I'm not going to give this to you in fullness right now, but I had a visitation in July in Brazil called Come Again, Holy Spirit. And I saw a great movement of the Holy Spirit. John Wimber, uh, in a dream, came and appeared before me. Instead of saying, Come Holy Spirit, like he was known to do. John Wimber appeared before you in a dream. <laughs> Well, there's a good reason to reject it just outright. And he's been now in heaven with the Lord for 15 years. I heard echoed reverberation three times. He echoed the word, come again, Holy Spirit. Ah, so it's the second coming of the Holy Spirit. It's, ay, 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 what is this? And it created a church quake that went. It, it created a church quake. Uh, doesn't sound good. Um, you know, the last thing I'd want is my church to quake and then fall to the ground and, you know, be taken over by somebody like this. Around the world. Number four, create a culture of risk. Luke 7. Uh, create a culture of risk? 17.6. And I want to say that it's just the faith of a mustard seed. But Yeah, but that passage about the mustard seed from Luke has nothing to do with creating a culture of risk. Hang on a second here. Hang on a second. Okay. All right. Luke chapter 13, verse 18. Here's what Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Well, it's like a grain of mustard that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Um, yeah, um, what's all the risk-taking thing in the mustard seed analogy metaphor? I'm just not seeing it. This is a speech-activated kingdom, and it, we must create the culture of risk. No <laughs> Again, I, what does this have to do with the mustard seed? Number six, it is this period of time we're in right now, it is a fresh presence worship movement uh fresh presence worship movement yes signs and wonders healings all of that prophetic evangelism all of that but some of our gatherings aren't going to be as much around great personalities as they're going to be the personality of the one and it is going to be not just great songs but it's going to be the great presence so i believe number six 
seven clear words for the new year is it is a time of a fresh presence uh-huh. worship movement. Fresh presence worship movement. Psalm 22, verse 27. Psalm 22, verse 27. Hang on a second. I got to get over there. Hang on. Psalm 22, 27. Okay. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Okay. Amazing verse. Let me read this to you. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before him. And then number seven, I want to say it's a time uh, clear. What does that have to do with any of these words that you just said, especially word six? Your word for this year and beyond is speak to your mountain. <laughs> I, I don't own a mountain. I, I live in Indiana, and if you haven't been to Indiana, at least central Indiana, then um, well, then you may not be aware that the geography here is noticeably flat. Um, we've got cornfields, and there's no mountains. Like, like there's in, mountains like the south part of Indiana near Kentucky. There ain't no mountains here. So I don't own a mountain. I, I don't even have a hill. I don't even have a lump. I mean, I just, I've got a very, very flat yard. I don't own a mountain, so I, I don't have any mountain to speak to. Mark eleven twenty three. you have to speak to your mountain to be taken up and cast into the sea. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, that we shout grace, grace, grace to the mountains of opposition. So there you go. There's some of what I see, and it's scripturally based. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's scripturally based only if, um, well, you're on drugs. It's full of the prophetic, and it's full of life. The door of the harvest is... Yeah, it's full of something, but it ain't prophetic, and it's not full of life, that's for sure. It's open. Release the kingdom of peace. Push the restart button. Come again, Holy Spirit. Walk in and create the culture of rest, a fresh presence, worship movement, and a time to speak to your mountain to be removed in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Yeah, um, I don't know what God you're talking to or is apparently talking with you, but it sure ain't the Holy Spirit from the scriptures. That's for certain. Yeah, and, and, so the you know, kind of the question is, is that uh, what's the point in having the Bible verses in what he said? Because none of those Bible verses are teaching any of the things that he's saying. And it was just silly and absurd. But notice, he claimed that this, all of the stuff that he's been saying, it's, he, it's biblical because he cited verses. And they have nothing to do whatsoever with any of the stuff that he said <clears throat> so you get what i'm saying here um it, we're talking about how people wrongly handle god's word this is a prime example of that particular particular problem and um you know he's saying one thing quoting a verse that says another when you look at it in context and yet he claims that was a biblical teaching uh-huh Right. All right. Well, we're going to take our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. 
Or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We'll be right back. And then we're going to take a look at um, Andy Stanley's question. Should we stop talking about pastors as shepherds and look at his handling of scripture, referencing it in that particular answer? Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. Hey, 
is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we're about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Just because somebody is quoting a Bible verse doesn't mean they're actually teaching you anything that the Bible really says. Think about it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Well, are you a member of our crew yet? Well, if you're not... Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on the Join Our Crew button. It's one of the friendly yellow buttons right there in the middle of the homepage. Fantastic way to support us. It's only $6.95 every month, and it comes out, uh, you know, like every 
30 days from the time which you would, you know, you fill out the form and join the crew. And the more people that join our crew, it levels out our giving helps us to budget properly and helps us to make budgets. So if you're not already a member of the crew, we can't do what we do without your, your financial support. That is a fantastic way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, so you've got the idea in your head now that um, <clears throat> just because somebody's quoting the Bible or making an, an allusion to it or a reference to it doesn't mean that they're actually teaching you the Bible. Well, let's see how this plays out in the world of, well, leadership, which is the new term that's been you know created, you know, the focus now of being a pastor. It's not about shepherding. It's about being a leader. And take a look at uh, how somebody like Andy Stanley handles God's word when it comes to the leadership model <clears throat> described in Scripture. And by the way, in, in this discussion, we'll not only take a look at that, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says as to you know what, you know what have pastors been given the authority to do. I think it's a great question to be asking. What have pastors been given the authority to do? In, in, in as kind of a secondary question to that is, in what are they supposed to be leading us? That would be a, a good way of putting it. And we're going to take a look at what the Bible says in this matter. But I'm also going to interject into here a portion of a uh, uh, of something I've written that is not published yet. So, but I want to read it to you because I think it comes into play in re, in regards to the model of leadership developed and promoted by seeker-driven um, you know, leaders like, well, Andy Stanley. So understand there's like a few th- moving parts to this segment, and I want you to be aware of them before we launch into them. And with that, here we go. Dun, 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 dun. All right, from Christianity Today from their leadership journal, the headline reads, Leaders Insight, Get It Done Leadership, Six Questions for Pastor and Leader Andy Stanley. Okay, so these are six questions asked to Andy Stanley and his answers, which are published at Christianity.com. And you can find it if you type in Leaders Insight, Get It Done Leadership, Andy Stanley. Just search that and you'll find it. But here's question number one to Andy Stanley. We're going to listen to all of the the, uh, questions and his answers. So here's the question. What is distinctly spiritual about the kind of leadership you do? Okay, keep in mind, uh, Andy Stanley is a seeker-driven leader. So here's his answer. He says, well, there's nothing distinctly spiritual. I think a big problem in the church has been the dichotomy between spirituality and leadership. One of the criticisms I get is, quote, your church is so corporate. I read blogs all the time. Bloggers complain. The pastor's like a CEO. And I say, okay, you're right. Now, what is? why is that a bad model? A principle is a principle, and God created all principles. Well, here's the problem, okay? I happen to have an MBA, um, and I got it from Pepperdine, and the emphasis of my MBA was leadership and organizational change. So I know a couple of things about leadership, and that is this. There's all kinds of different models out there, lots of them, okay? 
Um, so just saying, okay, um, you know, we so we have a corporate CEO leadership model, and that's a principle is a principle. God created principles. The problem is this: is that the CEO model of leadership, especially as developed by Peter Drucker, keep this in mind. Peter Drucker really is the father of the modern um, corporation as we understand it, and um, and the leadership model that he employed, the CEO model, is a vision casting model designed to organize a workforce towards achieving corporate objectives, okay? But here's the deal. The church isn't a workforce. And organizing the church like a business and having the pastor as a CEO, that's not revealed in Scripture. There's a different model, well, revealed in scripture. So here he just says, well, God created principles and, you know, a principle is a principle. Well, the problem is you haven't demonstrated that your leadership model is actually consistent with what God has revealed that, you know, what pastors are to be doing. Question number two to Andy Stanley. So what's the principle behind the CEO model? He says, here's his answer, quote, follow me, follow. We never... Follow we never works, ever. It's follow me. God gives a man or a woman the gift of leadership. And any organization that has a point leader with accountability and freedom to use their gift will do well. Unfortunately, in the church world, we're afraid of that. Has Has it been abused? Of course. But to abandon the model is silly. Churches should quit saying, oh, that's what businesses do. That whole attitude is wrong and it hurts the church. So notice what he's saying here. Okay, there's people out there saying, listen, we shouldn't be doing this in the church, and that shouldn't be our leadership model because that's what businesses do. Yet Andy Stanley's making the claim that that attitude is hurting the church. But he hasn't demonstrated that his biblical, that his model for leadership is actually biblical. Okay, we continue with his answer, though. He says, in terms of shifting culture, I say that guys like Bill Hybels and others who have been unafraid to say we have a corporate side of our ministry, it's going to be the best corporate institution it can possibly be, and we're not going to um, uh, to merge first century. Okay, so they're, they're going to have a corporate institution, and they're not going to merge anything from the first century into it. Why not? The Bible was, uh, parts of the Bible were written in the first century, especially the parts that pertain to the pastoral office. But he continues, he says, the church wasn't an organization in the first century. They weren't writing checks or buying property. The church has matured and developed over the years. But for some reason, the last thing to to uh, change is the structure of leadership. Listen to this argument again. The church wasn't an organization in in the first century. They weren't writing checks or buying property. The church has matured and developed over the years. But for some reason, the last thing to change is the structure of leadership. Weird argument. Um, yeah, the church didn't have cell phones back then either. Should we? This isn't. Notice this isn't a biblical argument. He's basically saying because the world has changed, we have to change our leadership. Now I'm going to show you from Scripture. From Scripture itself, this is absolutely flat out contradicted by what scripture says. We continue. Question number three. So why do pastors resist using business terms for leadership? Ooh, let me pick me. Let me answer. I know because they're not in the Bible. 
Well, that's not what he says. Here's what he says. Andy writes, he says, because there are people in our congregations who have red flags go up. Maybe they have red flags go up because the Bible doesn't teach this model of leadership. If you're a preacher's kid, you see the church differently. Having seen church from the inside out, it was very easy for me to abandon all that because I did not confer spirituality on congregational decision-making. To me, that system was just chaotic. It works against the gifts of the Holy Spirit in my mind, and it works against godly leadership principles. So here's an incredibly important principle. You cannot communicate complicated information to large groups of people. As you increase the number of people, you have to decrease the complexity of the, in, of the information. Congregational rule, when you're trying to make a complicated decision, works against the principles. So consequently, the guy with the microphone and the clearest message always wins. The most persuasive person in the room is going to win, whether right or wrong. Notice, again, this is not an argument from the Bible. It's, this is weird, okay? Well, so you had a bad um, experience with with the church having a congregational model. Um, so does that mean we just chuck what the Bible says regarding the role of pastor? So now here comes the important questions, at least the ones I think are really important, okay? Question number four. The question is this to Andy Stanley. Should we stop talking about pastors as shepherds? Now, I said it like that because it's in air quotes. So should we stop talking about pastors as shepherds? Here's his answer. Absolutely. That word needs to go away. Jesus talked about shepherds because there was one because uh, there was one over there in a pasture he could point to. But to bring in that imagery today and say, pastor, you're the shepherd of the flock. No, I've never seen a flock. I've never spent five minutes with a shepherd. It was culturally relevant at the time of Jesus, but it's not culturally rele- relevant anymore. Nothing works in our culture with that model except the sense of of the gentle pastoral care. Obviously, that's the face of the church and ministry, but that's not leadership. So he dismisses what Scripture says by making a fallacious argument. I'm going to point this out here in a minute, and I'll reference this again. His argument is, is that, oh, well, the only reason why Jesus said shepherd is because at the time there were shepherds. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, now he's going to make another point. Here's the next question. Isn't shepherd the biblical word for pastor? Okay, great question. Here's his answer. It's the first century word. Notice he doesn't say it's the biblical word. He says, oh, that's just the first century word. He continues. If Jesus were here today, would he talk about shepherds? No. He would point to something that we all know and we'd say, oh yeah, I know I know what that is. Jesus told Peter the fisherman to feed my sheep, but he didn't say to the rest of them, go ye therefore into all the world and be shepherds and feed my sheep. By the time of the book of Acts, the shepherd model is gone. Listen to the statement again. By the time of the book of Acts, the shepherd model is gone it's about it's about establishing elders and deacons and their qualifications. Shepherding doesn't seem to be the emphasis, even when it was. It was cultural. It was cultural and an illustration of something. What we have to do is identify the principle, which is which is that the leader is responsible for the care of the people he's been given. That I'm to care for and equip people in the organization to follow Jesus. But when we take the literal illustration and bring it into our culture, then people can make it anything they want because nobody knows much about it. 
weird argument. And by the way, he's flat out wrong. And what I mean by that is, is that the Bible contradicts him straight up. Absolutely straight up. You see, according to Andy Stanley, the shepherd thing, is, it's just a cultural metaphor. And of course, if Jesus were around today, he wouldn't use that word. Strange that he would say that because Jesus wasn't incarnate this century. He was incarnate, you know, two centuries ago. And he didn't, he could have talked about leadership at that time, by the way, uh, a leadership that was more akin to the type of leader that Caesar is. There's, there was different leadership models that existed at the time of Jesus. And Jesus being God could have used any kind of reference, okay? But he didn't use just any kind. He particularly chose the shepherd model. And the way, weird thing is, is that we all know what a shepherd is and what a shepherd does. I mean, there, as Pastor Charmley pointed out on my Facebook wall today, there are children's books that have pictures and illustrations of shepherds, okay? So his argument is, is that if Jesus were here, he would have used a different term. That's not a biblical argument, by the way. That's him basically trying to sneak into the biblical text stuff that isn't there. It's an allusion to the Bible while rejecting what the Bible says and then coming up with a culturally plausible sounding argument that, well, in order to teach something that the Bible doesn't teach, Weird, isn't it? Uh-huh. And then I mean, this and then this statement, by the time of the book of Acts, the shepherd model is gone. That is flat out historically a bald-faced lie. Absolutely 100% contradicted and contrary to what scripture actually says. So what we're going to do right now, real quick, we're going to take a look at a few passages, okay? And we're going to be asking the question, what have pastors been given the authority to do, okay? Because what they've been given to do is going to tell us which model best fits um, the pastoral office, okay? It's, plain, it's really that simple, okay? So let's look at some passages. Now, we're going to begin with one of these passages that contradicts Andy Stanley straight up. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5 Verses 1 through 4, which, by the way, was written written during the period of the book of Acts, right? Here's what he says. So I exhort the elders among you. Notice what he said there. Notice he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." In other words, let me point out a couple of things along the way here. I'm going to go back to Andy Stanley's article, okay? Here's what he said. He says, by the time of the book of Acts, the shepherd model is gone. 
It's about establishing elders and deacons and their qualifications. Shepherding doesn't seem to be the emphasis, even when it was, it was cultural in an illustration of something. Okay, and in this verse, this passage, verse Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, Peter is admonishing the elders to shepherd the flock. Okay, and how long are they to continue shepherding the flock? Until the chief shepherd appears. Okay, this is an important piece, by the way, of the pastoral office. And that's this, that a pastor is an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus. That's what this passage is really teaching. Okay, but when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So think of it this way. Jesus is the chief shepherd, right? Right. Your pastor is there literally standing in for the chief shepherd, Jesus. In the future, when Christ returns and comes for his church, we won't need pastors because we won't need people standing in for Jesus. We'll have a face-to-face relationship with him. Nobody's going to need to stand in for Jesus as a, an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. And yet, here, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, during the time of the book of Acts, by the way, tells the elders you know, of the church that he's writing to, to shepherd the flock of God. Okay? That means they exercise oversight, okay? They they don't do what they do for shameful gain. They don't domineer over the people in their charge, but they are examples to the flock. And then when the chief shepherd appears, how long is the shepherding stuff supposed to go on? It's supposed to go on until Christ returns, who is the chief shepherd. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 8 through 13, read Paul writing. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? This is talking about Christ. He who descended is the one who will also ascend far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints of the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Notice this, okay, in this list. Watch this. Apostles, is that a cultural um, metaphor? Nope. Prophet, is that a cultural metaphor? Nope. Evangelist, is that a cultural metaphor? Nope. Teacher, is that a cultural metaphor? Nope. So apparently only the word shepherd is a cultural metaphor that we need to get rid of. But see, notice here, these are all titles now. He gave apostles. In fact, you can actually say offices. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. So here, Ephesians chapter 4, which, by the way, was written well into the period known as the period of the book of Acts, right? It says that Christ, the one who ascended, he's the one who gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. 
Weird, huh? I mean, and he gave them to us for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. Contradicts straight up what Andy Stanley said there. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. This is the Apostle Paul, his farewell speech to the, uh, the church of Ephesus. Here's what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Huh. Interesting. So there we have the Apostle Paul Again, referring to the, the those in the church as part of a flock, giving them the charge of doing shepherdy work. And yet, let me read the quote again from Andy Stanley. By the time of the book of Acts, the shepherd model is gone. Not It wasn't gone at all. It was utterly emphasized and reiterated by both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, the two primary apostles at the time of the book of Acts, right? Now, real quick, I want to answer this question. What have pastors been given the authority to do? The the verses and the passages that we've been looking at actually kind of give us an outline of the things that pastors are to do. Now, this is not a comprehensive list, but let's talk about some of these things. Pastors are given the authority to preach the word, okay? I would, again, point you to 2 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 4, okay? Preach the word, okay? They are also given the authority to administer the Lord's Supper and to baptize. Clearly, these are within the purview of the responsibilities of a pastor. Um, pastors are also given the authority and responsibility to pray for and intercede, for the flock that is entrusted to them. We've already read this in, in these passages. Okay. They are also charged with basically living an honorable and moral way of life as an example to the flock. Okay. They are also given the authority to administer church discipline to impenitent Christians who, when confronted with their sins, refuse to repent and be forgiven. Right. Okay. And they also have the authority, I would point you to like uh, the, the, the epistle of James, to care for the poor, to visit and pray for the sick, right? Okay? If you look at what it is that pastors are supposed to be leading us in, right handling of God's word, proclaiming the truth, rightly handling it, teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine, right? Okay? They are given the task of presiding at the Lord's Supper, baptizing, praying for the flock, being an honorable, moral example of Christianity, um, administering church discipline, caring for the poor, visiting the sick. Um, That's not duties that fit a CEO. 
Nope. Okay. CEOs are all about organizing a workforce to get a task done or to profitably get tasks done and to keep the organization moving forward. The pastoral office is not about organizing a workforce. It's about feeding Christ's sheep. The reason why Christ used the shepherding metaphor is because that's exactly the model that is, is called for here. Okay, Different organizations have different models. And when you look at what it is biblically that the pastor is supposed to be doing, it explains perfectly why the shepherding model is being used because it that model fits what it is that Christ wants to have done. Shepherds are to feed and protect Christ's sheep, to raise them up in the faith, to disciple them, to discipline them, to feed them the Lord's Supper, to baptize them, to pray for them, to be a model of good works, and to care for the poor, visit the sick, things like that, right? That's when you look at what it is they're they're supposed to be leading us in, it makes perfect sense. That's the model that fits. But the seeker-driven model, leadership model, is not a shepherding model. They bristle under it. And what this article by Andy Stanley and the answers to these questions demonstrate very clearly is that they hate the shepherding model and will engage in any kind of obfuscation necessary to wipe it from our minds so that they aren't called on the carpet and shown for what they are, people who are rejecting what Christ has commanded pastors to be doing. That's exactly what he's doing. Okay, Now, I'm going to read to you a portion from an unpublished work that I currently have been working, actually I've been working on for years now it seems like, Okay, and this is talking about vision casting leaders. And I'm going to translate the word leader into German. Vision casting Fuhrer. Because what we're dealing with in the seeker-driven church is a model, a leadership model developed by Peter Drucker. Okay, and it is the same model that was used by the fascists. And there's a reason for that. Okay, so... Let me read. Here's what it says. Not all human organizations employ the same leadership model. Oftentimes, the leadership model employed by an organization depends on which one is best suited for the type of work that a company does. The military utilizes a top-down chain of command model. Many law firms employ a partnership model. Advertising agencies and media production companies thrive in a collaborative team environment. But... If we're to make sense of the ecclesiastical leadership model, which was developed and deployed by church growth consultants and seeker-driven church networks who've bought into the fascistic counter-enlightenment worldview of Peter Drucker, we must understand that their ideology is what drives their model. They philosophically deny the existence of the individual in time. They believe that communities are organic. They deny the existence of transcendent truth and are not only irrational, but are experiential enthusiasts down to their core. They eschew the transcendent and focus their attention on the imminent and have redefined the mission of the church from making disciples by baptizing teaching to, quote, making a difference in the world. 
How do you organize and run a church if you hold to a fascistic, anti-enlightenment worldview? The answer is the Fuhrer Principe, or the Leadership Principle. In this chapter, I will explain the origins and historical core tenets of the Fuhrer Principe. In the next chapter, I will demonstrate the parallels between the ecclesiastical leadership model employed by the seeker-driven church movement and the Fuhrer Principe, as well as highlight an important variation of the Fuhrer Principe developed by the Druckerites. Okay? Section, this section is entitled The Fuhrer Principe Ideological Roots and Tenets. Here's what I, here's what I wrote. As stated in the last chapter, Peter Drucker, who was the ideological mind behind the seeker-driven church movement, along with the fascists of the 20th century, bought into Rousseau's philosophical worldview, which denied the existence of the individual in time. Said Drucker, quote, It was Rousseau who formulated the idea that whatever human existence there is, whatever freedom, rights, and duties the individual has, whatever meaning there is in the individual life, it is determined by society according to society's objective need for survival. The individual, in other words, is not autonomous. He is determined by society. He is free only in matters that do not matter. He has rights only because society concedes them. He has a will only if he wills what society needs. His life has meaning only insofar as it relates to the social meaning and as it fulfills itself in fulfilling the objective goal of society. There is, in short, no human existence. There is only social existence. There is no individual. Individual. There is only the citizen. Okay? It was also Rousseau who laid the foundation for the leadership model that was to be employed by those who subscribed to his ideological worldview. Rousseau provides the details of this model in his work entitled The Social Contract. In that work, Rousseau, Rousseau claims that the state is a collective organism in which all individual liberties are assimilated or synthesized. What emerges from this communal collective organism is what he calls the general will, which then can mystically or spiritually be embodied in a single leader or fuhrer or sovereign. Dr. Edward Yunkins of Wheeling Jesuit University, University summarized Rousseau's ideas in his 2005 article entitled Rousseau's General Will and Well-Ordered Society, said Yunkins. The idea of the general will is at the heart of Rousseau's philosophy. The general will is not the will of the majority. Rather, it is the will of the political organism that he sees as an entity with a life of its own. The general will is an additional will somehow distinct from and other than any individual will or group of individual wills. The general will is by some means endowed with goodness and wisdom surpassing the beneficence and wisdom of any person or collection of persons. Society is coordinated and unified by the general will. Rousseau believed that this general will actually exists and that it demands the unqualified obedience of every individual. He held that there is only one general will and consequently only one supreme good and a single overriding goal toward which a community must aim. The general will is always a force of the good and the just. It is independent, totally sovereign, infallible, and inviolable. The result is that all powers, persons, and their rights are under the control and direction of the entire community. 
all power is transferred to a center, central authority or sovereign that is, the, that is the total community. Major decisions are made by a vote by all in what Rousseau calls a plebiscite, that is something like a town meeting without the benefit of, of debate. A legislator proposes laws but does not decide on them. The legislator is a person or an intellectual elite body that works out carefully worded alternatives, brings people together, and has people vote with the results binding on all. The authority of the legislator derives from his superior insight, charisma, virtue, and mysticism. The legislator words the propositions of the plebiscite so that the right decision will result. The right decisions are those that change human nature. The unlimited power of the state is made to appear legitimate by the apparent consent of the majority. Okay, that's what Youngkin says. Rousseau's ideas regarding a single leader mystically embodying the collective general will of the community were adopted by and further developed by fascist theorists and then later put into practice by the fascist governments of the 20th century. One of the most succinct explanations of the Fuhrer Princip was given by Hermann Goering during the Nazi war crimes trials in Nuremberg. On March 18, 1946, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson cross-examined Goering specifically in reference to the Fuhrer Princip. A partial transcript of that cross-examination is reproduced below. I've added emphasis in order to highlight some of the core concepts of this leadership model. So the president of of the trial asked Mr. Ju- uh, uh, Justice Jackson, this question, do, you, do the chief prosecutors wish to cross-examine? So this is from the actual Nuremberg trials. Justice Jackson says, he's asking a question to uh, uh, Gehring, you are perhaps aware that you are the only living man who can expound to us the true purpose of the Nazi party and the inner workings of its leadership. Gehring, I am perfectly aware of that. Jackson, you, from the very beginning, together with those who were associated with you, intended to overthrow and then later did overthrow the Weimar Republic. Gehring, that was, as far as I'm concerned, my first intention. Jackson, and upon coming to power, you immediately abolished parliamentary government in Germany. Gehring, we found it to be no longer necessary. Also, I should like to emphasize the fact that we were, uh, moreover, the strongest uh, parliamentary party and had the majority. But you are correct when you say that parliamentary procedure was done away with because the various parties were disbanded and they were forbidden. Jackson, you established the leadership principle, pure principle, which you have described as a system under which authority existed only at the top and is passed downwards, and is imposed on the people below. Is that correct? Gehring, in order to avoid any misunderstanding, I should like once more to explain the idea briefly as I understand it. In German parliamentary procedure, in the past, responsibility rested with the highest officials, who were responsible for carrying out the anonymous wishes of the of the majorities, and it was they who exercised the authority. In the leadership principle, we sought to reverse the direction. That is, the authority existed at the top and then passed downwards 
while the responsibility began at the bottom and passed upwards. Let me reread that sentence, okay? You, you kind of have to get what's going on here. In the United States of America, think of it this way. We elect government officials who serve us and represent us in Washington, D.C. So in the congressional district in which I live, we have a congressman and we have a senator and, and people like that. Our elected officials, they serve us. We send them to Washington. And then, you know, for instance, in the presidential election, oftentimes, you know, if a president of uh, a presidential candidate runs on a particular platform, if he receives a, a really strong majority, like 56, 57 percent of the vote, then he's said to have a mandate uh, to enact his, his, uh, his platform. Okay. The idea being this, in that, that the government officials serve their constituents. In the leadership principle, the fewer principle, everything is reversed, okay? Remember, this is coming off of Rousseau's concept here. The the fewer, the leader at the top has a mystical, he uses mysticism for this, a mystical vision of of what's necessary to move the community forward together. Okay, not only for their survival, but for their thriving and for their success. So the visionary leader is the one who receives the vision mystically. And then the idea then is, is that he's not there to serve the people below him. No. Okay. The people below him, they have the responsibility to make the vision come to pass. This is what's called the Fuhrer principle. Let me read the statement again. In the leadership principle, this is Gehring again, in, you know, being cross-examined. In the leadership principle, the Fuhrer principle, we sought to reverse the direction, that is, authority existed at the top and passed downwards, while the responsibility began at the bottom and passed upwards. Okay. Now, th- if this sounds familiar to you, it should sound familiar because of uh, the vision casting quotes that uh, that we've played before here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. Let me remind you of one of them. Listen to this one. This is Creflo Dollar. You know, you hear people say, well, why do you go to that church so I can be fed? You don't come here so you can be fed. You come here to help me and tap and fulfill his vision. That is, if God called you here, you hadn't been called so you can be fed the word. Now, if you get fed in the midst of it, that's good. But you've been called to find your part and bringing this vision to pass in the earth. That's why you've been called to the church. You haven't been called here. So I came here because I, so I can get fed the word. It's so interesting how we come to church out of all of a sudden. You didn't come here so you can get fed the word. Now, if you can get some word while you're here, that's a good too. But you came here because each of you have a piece and a part that you play in bringing this vision to pass. So if you're just kind of sitting around being fed, but not understanding that you have a part to play, in this vision coming to pass. That's why God called you. When God calls a person to a church, you're called to that church to help that pastor fulfill that vision. Okay, let me remind you of another very disturbing statement made by one of Eric Dykstra's um, you know, underlings. Listen to this. Yeah. Number two, we are united under the visionary. Now, the visionary here is Eric. The crossing is built on the vision that God gave Pastor Eric, yeah. and we will aggressively defend that vision. Now, what does that mean, you aggressively defend that? 
That means that we do church the way he wants us to do it. And me as a campus pastor, I can't go up to Zimmerman and decide that I'm going to preach on Sunday because that's not the vision that we have for this church that God gave to Eric. Mm -hmm. And we defend that when people go, well, maybe we should do it this way. And we're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God gave Eric this vision. We do it this way because we don't want to argue with God, basically. We don't want to be like... You know, Eric's not God. We're not saying Eric's God. He's not God. God. But he's got a vision from God, and we have decided with our lives that we're going to follow that vision, Mm -hmm. and we're going to stick to that. And if we ever just decide that we don't want to be a part of that vision, then we can go find a church and serve somewhere else. And that's that's okay. We're not telling anybody that they have to unite under this vision that, that Eric got from God. You can do whatever you want. But we think that it's a really cool vision. We're on board with it. And we're going to defend it, and we're going to stick to it. Okay. One more quote from Elevation Church. This is some really creepy lady reading from Elevation Church's vision statement. We are united under one vision. Elevation is built on the vision God gave Pastor Stephen. We will aggressively defend our unity and that vision. Okay, so what are we dealing with here? And Andy Stanley, you've got to understand this. Andy Stanley is one of the major leaders in this whole movement. Okay, what we're dealing with is an ecclesiastical version of the Fuhrer Princip, which was developed by Peter Drucker. Okay, let me read Gehring's quote again, and then I'll continue with the transcript. In the leadership principle, or the fewer principle, we sought to reverse the direction. That is, authority exists at the top and is passed downwards, while the responsibility began at the bottom and is passed upwards. Jackson. In other words, you did not believe in and did not permit government, as we call it, by consent of the governed, in which the people, through their representatives, were the source of power and authority. Gehring. That is not entirely correct. We repeatedly called on the people to express unequivocally and clearly what they thought of our system, only it was in a different way from that was well, that was what was previously adopted and from the system in practice in other countries. We chose the way of the so-called plebiscite. I mean, I've been pronouncing it wrong. This, the plebiscite. This is a Rousseau's concept. We took the point of view that even a government founded on the leadership principle could maintain itself only if it was based in some way on the confidence of the people. If it no longer had such confidence, then it would have it would have to rule. We would have to rule it with bayonets. And the Fuhrer was always of the opinion that that was impossible in the long run to rule against the will of the people. Jackson, but you did not permit the election of those who should act with the authority by the people. But they were designated from the top downward continuously, were they not? Gehring, quite right. The people were merely to acknowledge the authority of the Fuhrer or the leader, or let us say to declare themselves in agreement with the Fuhrer. If they gave the Fuhrer their confidence, then it was their concern to exercise the other functions. Thus, not the individual persons were to be selected according to the will of the people, but solely the leadership itself. Jackson, Now, was this leadership principle supported and adopted by you in Germany because you believe that no people are capable of self-government or because you believe that some may be, but not the German people or that matter or or that no matter whether some of, uh, of us are capable of using our own system, it should not be allowed in Germany? 
Gehring. I beg your pardon, I did not quite understand the question, but I could perhaps answer it as follows. I consider the leadership principle necessary because the system which previously existed and which we called parliamentary or democratic had brought Germany to the verge of ruin. I might perhaps in this connection remind you that your own President Roosevelt, as far as I can recall, I do not want to quote it word for word, declared certain peoples in Europe have forsaken democracy not because they did not wish for democracy as such, but because democracy had brought forth men who were too weak to give their people work and bread and to satisfy them. For this reason, the peoples have abandoned this system and the men belonging to it. There is much truth in that statement. This, this system had brought ruin by mismanagement, and according to my own opinion, only an organization made up of a strong, clearly defined leadership hierarchy could restore order again. But let it be understood, not against the will of the people, but only when the people having in the course of time and by means of a series of elections grown stronger and stronger had expressed their wish to entrust their destiny to the National Socialist leadership. Jackson, the principles of the authoritarian government which you set up required, as I understand you, that there be tolerated no opposition by political parties which might defeat or obstruct the policy of the Nazi party. Gehring, you have understood this correctly. By that time, we had lived long enough with opposition and we had had enough of it. Through, through opposition, we have been completely ruined and it was now time to have done with it and to start building up. Jackson, after you came to power, you regarded it necessary in order to maintain power to suppress all opposition parties? Gehring, we found it necessary not to permit any more opposition. Yes. Jackson, and you also held it necessary that you should suppress all individual opposition lest it should develop into a party of opposition? Gehring, insofar as opposition seriously hampered our work of building up, this opposition of individual persons was, of course, not tolerated. Okay, let me summarize. From what we've read from both Rousseau and Gehring, here is a summary of the core tenets of the Fuhrer Principle. Number one, the individual does not exist. Two, the community or communal collective is the organic entity. Three, all individual rights are assimilated and synthesized into the collective. Four, from that collective arises the general will. A, for A, this is not the will of the majority. For B, it is the mystical will of the collective and it is uh, good, wise, totally sovereign, infallible, and inviolable. Uh, five, the general will demands the unqualified obedience of every individual. No opposition will be tolerated. Six, each community has one supreme good and a single overriding goal toward which it must aim. This would be a mission and vision. Seven, the general will is mystically embodied in a leader or fuhrer or sovereign. Eight, the function of the leader, the fuhrer, is to lead the community towards its supreme goal. A, this requires the leader to mystically be in tune with both the general will and the community's supreme goal. That would be their mission and their vision. The leader, the Fuhrer, has all the authority. C, the members of the community have all the responsibility of achieving the community's supreme goal as communicated through the vision of the leader. Okay, that's 
what's you know, so that's kind of an overall summary of the Fuhrer Princip. Now, by the way, let's talk about what those who buy into this leadership model do in the church with opposition. Listen again to Mark Driscoll. Here's what I've learned. You, you cast vision for your mission, and if people don't sign up, you move on. You move on. There are people that are going to die in the wilderness, and there are people that are going to take the hill. That's just how it is. Um, too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. Um, I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. And uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a guy who is like, look, we love you, but this is what we're doing. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. they got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. they got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There are people who will uh, be on the bus, leaders and helpers and servants. They're awesome. There's also just sometimes nice people who sit on the bus and shut up. Um, they're not helping or hurting. Just let them ride along. Um, you know what I'm saying? But don't look at the nice people that are just going to sit on the bus and shut their mouth and think, I need you to lead the mission. They're never going to. At the very most, you'll give them a job to do and they'll serve somewhere and help out in a minimal way. If someone can sit in a place that hasn't been on mission for a really long time, they are by definition not a leader. And so they're never going to lead. Uh, you need to gather a whole new core. I'll, I'll tell you guys what, too. You don't do this just from your church planting or replanting. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. We just took certain guys and rearranged the seats on the bus. Yesterday, we fired two elders for the first time in the history of Mars Hill last night. They're off the bus, under the bus. Um, they were off mission, so now they're unemployed. I mean, you this will be the defining issue as to whether or not you succeed or fail. So just like the original Fuhrer Princip, which has its core in Rousseau's ideology as developed by the fascists, they do not tolerate any opposition. Those who teach the ecclesiastical fewer principle, they don't tolerate any opposition either. You oppose the vision, you, you're off the bus. Or as, well, I'm releasing you to take a small portion of your church's budget, build a catapult, put it in the church parking lot. This is James McDonald talking about getting rid of opposition. And load it regularly. I think we can shoot this one right out of our county. Yeah, and so build a catapult, put it in the church parking lot, get rid of the opposition. So here's the idea. I know this is controversial, but we call a thing what it is. The seeker-driven leadership model developed by Peter Drucker is nothing less than and nothing more than a, a church version of the Fuhrer Principe. Okay. The same principles apply. Now, the, what's different about it, just real quick, is where um, the 20th century fascists and Rousseau talked about the general will and how the leader or the Fuhrer would be in touch with the general will. 
The difference with the ecclesiastical Fuhrer principle is that the general will has been replaced with the individual vision that the that the leader is supposed to get from God. Okay, so the general will is no longer something that come burbles up from the community. Instead, it comes from the top down, and that would be from God down to the leader. And then you know that vision that the leader has must be enacted. And the responsibility for making that come about is is the responsibility of the people in these churches. And Andy Stanley is one of the major leaders putting forward this leadership model. And this is not what's revealed in God's word. It isn't revealed in there at all. It doesn't have its origin in the Bible, in, in the Holy Spirit. It has its origin in Rousseau and the early 20th century fascists. And this is a historical fact. You may not like it, but it's absolutely true. And that's why their leadership model must not only be fought against, it must be rejected and battled to the point where it's cast out of the church because these guys are not pastors. They are Fuhrers. And it's really, really dangerous and messing up the church. Okay, we're up on our second break. It's going to be a long episode today. When we get back, sermon review from New Spring. A sermon about protecting your pastor by Clayton King, speaking on behalf of Perry Noble. It all fits into this puzzle that we're trying to put together here at Fighting for the Faith. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipe out. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Just doing, you might ask? 
Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. We're well into hour number two here at Fighting for the Faith. Apologize for the length, but we need to put in some depth of teaching today. If you're officially weirded out by what you're learning, you should be. Here we go. And the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. Clayton King presiding, actually filling in for um, Perry Noble. The name of the sermon is Protecting Your Pastor. Now, the sermon was preached a few years ago, but it was re-preached really just about a year and a half ago. Okay. At least something very similar to it. This is the type of messaging that if you hear this, you need to run. Because your pastor is a vision-casting Führer who believes in the Führer principle, even though he may not call it that. Okay? The leadership principle. And pay attention to how Clayton mishandles God's word. I'm going to point it out along the way and kind of bring you back to solid hermeneutics. Um, but I'm not going to need to interrupt this sermon as as often as I interrupt other sermons, okay? For reasons that will become obvious as we go. You just need to listen because this is 180 degrees backwards. And Clayton King is using a passage that has absolutely nothing to do with the office of pastor and his roles and responsibilities to basically convince the people at New Spring that they need to become pit bulls. And protect their leader. You no joke. So let me kill the music. And without any further ado, here's Clayton King from New Spring Church protecting your pastor. Hey, what's up? What's up? You know, Perry is my best friend and my accountability partner. And I don't like to correct him, but I need to because the video that you just saw was cut on Thursday. And since Thursday... The number has changed. It's now over $13 million that has been pledged. Glory to God. Glory to God. 
It's good to be back. I love New Spring. I love you so much that I'm preaching right now while the Dallas Cowboys are playing those horrible, no good New England Patriots. But we know that God's will will be accomplished and the Cowboys will come out victorious. We believe that, right? It is game time out, right? It is game time. When Perry called and asked me to wrap up this series, I was really honored whenever he said, hey, we're going to be doing our big campaign. The people in the church are going to be challenged to raise this amount of money. We're going to be in August and September seeing people saved, praying for all of these souls to come to Christ. I started praying about what I could preach on. And one of the things I get to do as the teaching pastor here at New Spring, because I've been friends with Perry for so long and because I've been a part of New Spring since it first got started, I'm able to kind of come in and, and preach from a different perspective as kind of a homeboy, but also as kind of an outsider. Because I don't live here in Anderson, and I come and preach eight to ten times a year. Because I talk to Perry on a regular basis. Because we do hold each other accountable. And because God has knit our hearts together as friends and as brothers. I like to come in and take a different angle every once in a while. And so what I want to preach on tonight as we wrap up the Game Time series, in keeping with that analogy with football, is I want to talk about protecting your pastor. Just like... Just like an offense has to protect their quarterback, if you can't protect your quarterback, you can't score points, and you can't win a game. If a church doesn't know how to protect its leadership, then that church can never become everything that God wants it to be. Okay, and stop. He just said that if a church doesn't know how to protect its leadership, then a church can't become everything that God wants it to be. What passage in the Bible says this? Answer, there isn't even one. There's not a word of scripture that says this. And you'll notice that this is 100% backwards from what scripture does say. The job of the pastor is to protect the flock. When, when has it ever been the responsibility of the sheep to protect its shepherd? Answer, never. This is 180 degrees backwards. And notice the, the analogy. The, by the way, the sermon series is entitled Game Time, which is a football, uh, you know, based upon football. And so now Perry Noble is likened to, well, Tom Brady or, you know, uh, one of the major quarterbacks in the NFL. And the job of the church is to protect their quarterback so that he can make the plays. Where does the Bible teach this? Answer, it doesn't. Why is Clayton King the one delivering this message? Because trust me, if Perry Noble had delivered this message, people would have saw it for what it was, false teaching. We continue. Now, there are two things about me that you need to know, which all kind of filter into this message tonight. Uh, number one, I love Perry. And number two, I love football. And I'm kind of, I kind of feel like that old country song, I'm not as good as I once was. I'm 34. I played football for the first, uh, well, for about 12 out of the first 18 years of my life. And I still dream on a regular basis that I've got one final high school football game left to play to any of you guys or maybe. So you're like Uncle Rico from uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Got it. Any girls dream that you've got one game left? Anybody? One person admitted to it. Praise God. I am not alone in this room tonight. And so when you think about winning a game, there's got to be a plan. And I think a lot of times what happens, at least in the classic sense of church, is that we ask all kinds of questions. 
How do we grow a church? How do we see people saved? How do we disciple the people who come to Christ? How can we build a new building? How can we have another campaign? What's the next series going to be? We ask a lot of questions. But I wonder if the classic church ever asks this question. Are we doing a good job protecting our pastor? And so I want to kind of sum it all up. into Where in the Bible has any sheep been, you know, in Christ's flock been admonished to protect their pastor. You see, it's absurd when you understand what Scripture says. There's a reason why churches that are traditional don't ask this question, because they understand what Scripture says regarding the leadership model revealed and taught by Christ. The one phrase tonight before we go to Second Samuel, and here's how I want to encapsulate what I'm going to say in the next few minutes. When it comes to protecting the people that God put in leadership over us as a church, the best offense is a good defense. The best offense is a good defense. No matter if you grew up playing football or soccer or softball or, or, or basketball or baseball, you know that you've got to be able to play defense to win games and that defense wins championships. And so I want to stay from the, from the very beginning What a great job this church has always done in allowing your leaders and especially your pastor to follow after God's vision, to focus on the vision for this church, on preparing a sermon, a message that's going to be... Okay, did you hear that? Let me play it again. To follow after God's vision, to focus on the vision for this church. Okay, the vision for this church. Nowhere in Scripture are we led to believe that individual congregations are supposed to receive a specific vision, okay? Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere are we taught that in Scripture. But the Fuhrer Principle teaches, let me read from the summary again, each community has one supreme good and single overriding goal which it must aim. The general will is mystically embodied in the leader, And the function of the leader is to lead the community towards its supreme goal or mission or vision. Listen again so you can hear what's going on. This is the ecclesiastical Fuhrer Principle. Follow after God's vision to focus on the vision for this church, on preparing a sermon, a message that's going to be preached to God's people every week. What a great job you have and are doing in making sure that the pastor and the leadership team is not overwhelmed by doing every little thing. I I still tell people everywhere I go, because New Spring obviously is on the map, and people talk about what God's doing here. One of the things that impresses me the most about this church is how many volunteers there are and how many people take ownership in church. You know, that's a little bit different in most big churches. A lot of times in a big church, you can just kind of show up and blend in. And if we're not careful, we kind of get the Nirvana attitude. You know, the 90s grunge rock band from Seattle, Nirvana. Here we are now, entertain us. But this church doesn't have that. You do a great job of pitching in and being a part of what God's doing in his kingdom right here in this local congregation. But in order for the church to continue to grow and to be what God wants it to be, there's got to be this attitude that says from the church body, We are going to protect our pastor. We're going to honor our leadership. We're going to bless them the way they bless us. Because after all, the word pastor, the Greek word is poimen. It is one who is called alongside to help you and to care for you. A pastor is ultimately 
a shepherd. Now, this is where it gets weird, okay? Think back to the first segment of the program where James Gall would say, here's my, I got this vision from the Holy Spirit, and then he would reference a biblical verse. And then when you paid attention to what the verse really says, you realize what he says the Holy Spirit was telling him has nothing to do with that verse. That is what's going on here. So here, Clayton King is making a reference to, hey, the biblical word is shepherd. But listen carefully to the details. Let me back it up just a smidge so you can kind of hear what he's going to do with this. Because the point he's going to make is the exact opposite of the very concept that he's teaching. It is one who is called alongside to help you and to care for you. A pastor is ultimately a shepherd. A shepherd who cares for the people and loves the people. And any good shepherd is always willing to lay down their lives for their sheep. And your pastor is willing to lay his life down for you. Your staff is willing to sacrifice their lives so that you might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Healthy churches are, are full of people who understand that reality and in the same way say, let me then serve our leadership. Let me then protect our pastor. Unhealthy churches are... Yeah, let me then protect my pastor. The job of the pastor is to protect the flock. When did it become the responsibility of sheep to protect the shepherd? So the concept that he just laid out is not what, it doesn't teach what he's saying. Serve our leadership. Let me then protect our pastor. Unhealthy churches are the ones who have the nirvana attitude. Here we are now, entertain us. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to disagree with that. If you, if you have a church where the people's attitude is they're going to cross their arms and basically look at you and go, entertain me, there's some deep problems with the folks in that church and they need to have the law smack them upside the head so that they're brought to repentance and then forgiveness for this. Make me laugh. Tell me something funny. It better be an interesting, relevant sermon or I'll take my tithe and go to another church. So that's what we're going to do tonight. From 2 Samuel chapter 23, we're going to see a story of several men, one in particular toward the end of this passage. That Now notice he said 2 Samuel 23. When did 2 Samuel chapter 23 become a passage about pastors? Answer, never. It's not. Now, if you think, go back to the episode where I talked about Cetes Doctrine, okay, the seat of doctrine, okay? The idea is this, is that there are, there's primary, there's a primary passage that lays out a doctrine, and then there's other passages that are clear that, you know, that are commentary on it, and that clear passages govern unclear. The idea then is, is that you don't take a passage that isn't about a particular topic and use it to obliterate a clear passage on a particular thing. For instance, okay, you know, this, a, a, a historical example is probably helpful here. The Arians tried to say that in the book of Proverbs, it talks about wisdom being the first created thing of God. And that that's somehow allegorical or metaphorical or, or a picture of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus must be created. Well, that passage is, you know, wisdom. Sophia there is is a personification of wisdom. 
And that's not a clear passage regarding Christology, but that was one of the major arguments used by the Arian heretics to obliterate the uh, the deity of Christ, the eternal deity of Christ. They were taking an unclear passage and making it the, the clear passage that then destroys the others. Here's the idea. Nowhere in 1st or 2nd Samuel is there doctrine laid out regarding the office of the pastor. Those passages cannot possibly be used to describe or tell us anything about what our function or role or attitude or anything should be towards our pastor. Those passages are the clear passages regarding the pastoral office are in the New Testament, and I've already read them in this episode of Fighting for the Faith. Something's really wrong here because he's going to a passage that has nothing to do with the pastoral office to try to make the point that you need to protect your pastor. There were no pastors in the Old Testament in that sense. Something's really screwy here. That really knew how to honor and protect their leader. 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we'll start off in verse 13. This is a story about King David. And after I read these verses to you, we'll back up a minute and we'll do a little, a short review of what kind of man David was and why God chose him to be the leader, the king, or the pastor over a nation called Israel. Verse 13. Okay, that was really sneaky. See if you see the problem here. Okay, I'm going to back this up a little bit. Watch what he does. The king or the pastor over a nation called Israel. Verse The king or the pastor over the nation called Israel. David was a political king. And here, Clayton King is saying, oh, Day King David, he's a pastor. He was a literal shepherd, but as king, he, pastors are not kings. Your pastor is not a king. There's something really going screwy here. Listen again. Of what kind of man David was and why God chose him to be the leader, the king, or the pastor. Yeah, leader, king, pastor. Those are not synonyms. And that's where this thing goes off the rails completely. But now we're in in 2 Samuel. Over a nation called Israel. Verse 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. There were 30 men that were famous all throughout Israel because of the way they could fight, because of the way they could defend their king. These men were bad to the bone. But out of those 30, there were three that were like the Navy SEALs. They were like the Delta Force. They were like the highly trained assassins. These guys would do anything for King David, and they were famous because of how fiercely and aggressively loyal they were to their king. It says in verse 14. Okay, notice this. This passage has tells you nothing of what God wants you to think or have the attitude towards a pastor. This is describing military men of, you know, of the army of Israel and their loyalty to King David. This is not giving us a picture of what then your job is when it comes to protecting your pastor. At that time, David was in the stronghold 
And the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, is David's hometown. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, David didn't really expect anyone to go get this water for him. Apparently, he's living in a cave under attack from the Philistines, fearing for his life. He's got his band of mighty men there to defend him to the death. And because he's parched and dehydrated in the desert of of Israel, he says out loud, kind of like we like to think out loud, I remember when I was a kid playing in the streets of Bethlehem. I remember drawing water from the well at the city gate. And oh, what I would not give right now to have a drink of water from that well that I grew up drinking out of as a little boy. The nostalgia was flowing. He wanted water. What happened as a result is simply breathtaking. David wishes out loud that he had water from the well in his hometown where he grew up. And look what happens when his mighty men hear this wish. It says in verse 16, so the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. So that old phrase, your wish is my command, came from this verse right here. Yeah, and this should be your attitude towards your pastor. His wish should be your command. Holy smokes. Really, huh? This is not what the Bible teaches about your relationship to your pastor at all. Like I've been pointing out, This is the ecclesiastical Fuhrer Princip. These three mighty men not only had to break through the enemy lines of the Philistines to get to the well, they had to draw water from the well, apparently one of them drawing water while the other two held off an entire garrison of Philistine soldiers. Then they had to fight them all the way back to the cave and get into the cave to give the water to David. These guys are the kind of guys you don't mess with. Y'all with me? These guys are fierce. And they are loyal. And when they brought the water back to David, David refused to drink. And make no mistake, this is what he expects the people at New Spring to be. Fierce and loyal to Perry Noble. Drink it. But instead, he poured it out before the Lord. And verse 17 says, Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. This may not make sense to us. If someone risked their lives to bring you back a gift that you wanted, you would probably be extremely thankful and you'd consider it to be rude to not take that gift. But in the days of David, in ancient Israel, in ancient Judea, these men had risked their lives for their king. And David, the highest honor he could pay these guys was not to selfishly drink the water himself, but to give it as a drink offering to God. Now, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with protecting my pastor? How does this have anything to do with being the kind of church that continues to support and love and protect the people that God calls into leadership? The answer is it doesn't. It has absolutely nothing. This passage has no bearing whatsoever on what your attitude should be towards your pastor. Well, first of all, you need to understand that when God calls certain people to be leaders, unless God has called you to do it, you really can't finish the job. Not everybody's called to be a leader. Not everyone has got the the born ability to do it. Some of you are naturally born leaders. You can't help it. Others of you, you get so nervous 
Even the thought of having to stand up in front of people scares you to death. You feel like you need to go take a pill just by having to get up in elementary school and write a word on the dry erase board for a spelling bee. Some of us are just different than that. Someone asked me after the service just a while ago, Clayton, what do you do when you get nervous before you speak? And I, and I said, honestly, I, I don't get nervous. This doesn't make me nervous. Let me tell you what makes me nervous. A math problem. A math problem makes me nervous. Let me tell you what else makes me nervous. State troopers make me nervous. I drive differently when they're behind me. I love all of the security officers here at New Spring, but, 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 and I know they're not here to arrest me for my, for my driving abilities or lack thereof, but I still get nervous when I see men in uniform. These are things that make me nervous. Or when my wife calls me and says, honey, that makes me nervous, okay? Makes me nervous. Leaders are gifted and equipped by God to do certain things. Now, let me just make a few points here as we get started tonight, because when it comes to protecting your pastor, let me tell you why this is such a big deal and why I'm going to say it tonight with clarity and without apology. In many cases, and I don't want to stereotype, I love the traditional church. I grew up in it. I still preach in lots of traditional churches. But the classic example of pastoral burnout kind of goes like this. Okay, now notice he's not talking about what Scripture says. Now he's going to an argument from, a, from bad experience. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of people who've been in pastoral ministry who have had a similar experience to this. That does not warrant what this Bible teaching that he's giving is about. He's totally taken a passage that has nothing to do with your, your relationship to your pastor, made it about your relationship to Perry Noble if you're at New Spring, and now he's going to argue from experience. He's not going to any of the biblical texts to support in the clear teaching what he's teaching because what he's teaching is not found in Scripture. Church interviews potential pastors. They look at their resumes. They see what churches they've been to and how many people they baptized and how big the church was when they started and how big the church was when they left. Then they bring the pastor in for a face-to-face interview, usually conducted by a committee. Committees are not always good. They're not always bad. Sometimes they're very helpful. Sometimes they are the spawns of Satan. Okay, let's just tell the truth. And so a committee interviews a pastor, and that's a great way. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. They look at the resume, they ask questions, but instead of it being, many times, instead of it being a spiritual exercise in trying to find the right shepherd for the people, it becomes a business negotiation. Well, how much do you want? How much do you need to have to survive? Oh, you need that much. Well, we can do this much. And then it becomes like you're trying to close on a house. It's almost like you need a real estate broker to come in the middle and kind of be the middleman or the middlewoman. And what ends up happening oftentimes in the classical idea of church and pastoral leadership is that the church hires, hires someone thinking they'll get the biggest bang for their buck. In other words, let's see who we can bring in here and work them like a Hebrew slave under the Egyptians' rule. And let's see how little we can get away with paying them 
And then we'll expect them to do everything. Not only do they have to preach on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, but they've got to be there for VBS. And they've got to be there for every homecoming. And they've got to be there for every baby's birth. And then six weeks later for that baby's dedication. They've got to preach every funeral. They've got to be at every wedding. They've got to do all the marriage counseling. And then many times the pastor is also the one who unlocks the church on Sunday morning, who locks it up on Sunday night, who turns on the air conditioner in the summertime, who turns on the heat in the wintertime, who makes sure the water in the baptistry is not too hot or not too cold, who orders the Sunday school curriculum, who hand delivers it to the Sunday school classes. And you know what? It's no wonder that so many pastors absolutely lose their desire to be in ministry because they become the catch pond for everything that has to be done in the church. And that is not how God intended his people to live. That's what I love about. Okay. What's interesting is that there is a, passage that you could go to in the book of Acts where um, where there was a problem with the distribution of the food to the widows and they set up deacons to deal with the distribution of food so that the apostles continued to focus on proclaiming the word. You could go to that, but he didn't use this passage. And I think the reason why is because it's very clear that the apostles in that text were very concerned about protecting their time so that they could rightly preach the Word of God. That was their focus. That's not Perry Noble's focus, though, by the way, at all. New Spring, there is a shared sense of identity and belonging and ownership here. You will destroy a man's life if that man has the sole responsibility of doing everything that has to be done in a local church. Big or small, black or white, Pentecostal or Calvinist, honey, it does not matter. No one person can take that kind of pressure. And the Bible doesn't teach that one person should take all of that. That's why there's elders and deacons. In fact, there's quite a plurality of leadership that is laid out in the New Testament. It's weird. He's not going to any of the passages that talk about the pastoral office. The reason for that is because none of those passages teach on the importance of sheep being like the mighty men of valor who will give their lives to protect their leader. Nobody can. And I've got the benefit of being an itinerant evangelist. That's what I do. I travel. I've been in 25 countries and 45 states. I've preached over 4,000 sermons in the last 20 years since I was 14. And I can tell you one sad story after another of pastors who just stay in a job for a paycheck. They go along to get along. They know that there are certain power brokers in a church or a man with a lot of money or a woman with a lot of family and we don't want to cross them because we can't make them mad because if I make them mad, then I'll get fired and what will my family do for health insurance? This is the reality of the life of a pastor. And don't think that the small, the small church pastors have it harder than the large church pastors. I mean, just because a church gets bigger doesn't make it easier on the pastor. That'd be the equivalent of me saying, you know, the first um, four years of my marriage to my wife, Shari, were easy. But then we had kids. And it's been a walk in the park since then. We had our first kid and it just became really easy. We said, let's have another one now. We sleep till noon, play golf, go see movies. I think we're going to have four more. Let's have some more kids so life can get easier. The pressure gets exponentially larger as God blesses his church. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to be that voice 
that stands up with clarity and without apology and says, New Spring, you're doing a great job. Keep protecting your leadership. Now, I'm going to show you a few things about pastors that we must understand. Okay? Number one, they're targets. They're targets. Prove it to you. Look in verse 13. During the harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Again, this passage has nothing to do with the pastoral ministry at all. Why were Philistines camped in the valley? Anybody want to take a guess? Why was David hiding in a cave with a small band of mighty men he trusted to protect him? Because there was... David, again, is not a pastor. There was an army of Philistines outside. What did they want to do? Play backgammon? No. They didn't, they didn't want to download... So he wants you to believe that your pastor is like King David and you need to be like his mighty men protecting him from those evil Philistines. Music with King David. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to separate his head from his shoulders. Do you know why? Little dude named Goliath. Sound familiar? The Philistines and the Israelites did not get along. They had had a history. David was a 14-year-old punk kid, the smallest of all the brothers in his family. And when the prophet Samuel came to anoint a new king, he came to Jesse's house. He said, bring all your sons in front of me. And all of them came one by one. The most attractive, the most educated, the, the, the best groomed. All of these guys, the best educated, the most charismatic. And all the way to the last one. And Samuel says, none of these, none of these will work. Do you have any other children? And Jesse said, got one, but he's not your guy. He's a shepherd. Shepherds were the lowest of the low. The youngest kid always got the job being the shepherd. Shepherds were made fun of. They were criticized. They were marginalized in society. Why do you think that when Jesus was born, the angels appeared to two different kinds of people? Who did they appear to? The Magi, remember that? The wise men from ancient Iran or Iraq, the Mesopotamian area. Why did he appear to them? Because they were the upper echelon, the educated, the elite, the wealthy, the rich. Who else did they appear to? Shepherds. Why? Because shepherds were the bottom of the ladder. Nobody wanted to hang out with shepherds. Um, actually, the biblical text doesn't say why. You're adding to Scripture when you claim that you know the reason why. Shepherds. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. Shepherds smell like sheep. Shepherds hung outside with animals all the time. They didn't live indoors. People didn't like shepherds. You know why it's significant that the angels appeared to both groups of people? Because God was saying, listen to me, people. Earth, hear this. I'm sending a Savior, and He is for everybody. He is for the down and out and the up and in. He's for the rich and the poor. He's for the white and the black. He's for the illegal immigrant and the homosexual. He is available to anyone who will repent and put their faith in Him. David is a 14-year-old shepherd boy who becomes a king of Israel, but before he's coronated, guess what happens? He has, now listen to this, this, I love this story. He's going to the front lines of a battle that has not yet taken place. And there is, there that day, a giant named Goliath who walks out into the valley every day and he taunts the Israelites. Send somebody to fight me. I'm feeling froggy, let's jump. Come on, I want to beat somebody up. I'm going to knock you out. My mama said knock you out. LL Cool J had inspired him even 3,000 years ago. I want to fight somebody. I am jacked up on testosterone. Bring it on. David, 14-year-old kid, 
the one we're reading about right here, he has a goat cheese sandwich in his pouch. Multiple goat cheese sandwiches, as it were. And he's bringing them to his brothers. And he shows up with goat cheese sandwiches for lunch. And he sees a nine foot tall Philistine talking smack about Yahweh. And this 14 year old punk who's got the heart of a lion says, and I quote, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that will dare speak a word against God? Now notice in his telling of the story, who's David? Answer, Perry Noble. Everybody's like, shh. He's really big, okay? Why won't somebody shut him up? Because have you seen? He's large. He's large. Why isn't Saul fighting him? Saul's the king. Saul is supposed to defend God's honor. Why isn't Saul fighting him? Because Saul's a coward. And because Saul had lost his anointing because he disobeyed God a couple of chapters earlier. Here's what David says. Oh, I love this. Bring me my sling and five stones. What? What for? What for? What are you going to do? I'm going to shut his mouth. Oh, no, you're not. Let's put Saul's armor on you. It won't fit. It's too big. Think again. Reconsider. This is a bad idea. You know what David says? I love this. David says, know this day, Israel, that there is a God in heaven. And he says this in front of the whole entire crowd of soldiers and the armies who are amassed. He says this so that Goliath can hear it. Here's what David says. The same God that delivered a bear and a lion into my hands when they came to kill my sheep is the God who will deliver you into my hands today, Goliath. And the birds of the air will eat your rotten flesh. In other words, I'm about to open up a can of the Holy Ghost on you. You better get ready. So what happens? Of course, Goliath is killed. David cuts his head off. And the Philistines had been mad about it. Now, again, i got to reiterate this. In this twisting of this particular text, it has nothing to do with the pastoral ministry. Rather than David being a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, the shepherd king, now David is a foreshadowing of Perry Noble. That's what's going on here. Ever since David is now camped out in a cave, and right outside the cave is an army of people that want to kill him. How do pastors deal with this? What are some of the things they deal with? Rumors. Rumors. <laughs> really, rumors are the equivalent of somebody wanting to kill King David. Really? Pastors go through rumors. Like, what do you mean go through rumors? Well, it's just a part of a pastor's life. When you're in leadership, people spread rumors about you. you. Read the book of Psalms. Trust me. Read the book of Psalms and you will hear the frustration in David's voice. Why do people speak evil against me? Rumors. Can I tell you some of the good ones I've heard? I, there are so many good rumors. Perry's not here tonight and um, I'm sure he'll watch this. And that's okay because um, I hear some really good ones about y'all's church. Which is funny to me because... I'm here all the time. And here's some of the good ones I've heard. Um, I love this one. Uh, Perry preaches with his shirt off sometimes. Now, I, I, until he said that, I'd never even heard that rumor. But, I mean, based upon, you know, what I heard of Perry Noble early on, I would have thought that he, you know, preached wearing a mullet 
and uh, you know a, a T-shirt that's cut with the wife beater style with you know the uh, the Schlitz logo on it. That's what I would have thought. Now, Perry may not have a Ph.D., but I think he's smart enough to know that preaching with his shirt off would drastically affect the attendance in a negative way at New Spring. Honey, hey, secret, I've seen Perry with his shirt off. If me and Perry showed up at any church with our shirts off, all the people at the church would leave, and the only people who would come were the folks looking for the Sasquatch conventions, okay? Amazing! Rumors! Things are absolutely untrue. This is the world of a pastor. They are constantly target, targeted by people who would rather tell a funny, crazy lie than believe the truth. They're, they're not only targeted with rumors, they're targeted with criticism. Pastors are criticized all the time. And it's not just Perry. It's every pastor. It's every leader. It's every politician. It's every coach. It's every teacher. Your pastor goes through an amazing amount of criticism. You, some of you may know it. You can't say some of the things that Perry says and not expect to get criticized. But it's amazing that so many times... Okay, that was a fun admission. Let me back it up so you can hear it again. Um, listen again. You can't say some of the things that Perry says and not expect to get criticized. But That's right. And the criticism that he gets is absolutely warranted based upon his unbiblical statements and attacks against people who want to go deeper in God's word and things like that. It's amazing that so many times the greatest criticism comes from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And a lot of times the people who speak the truth are the ones who are criticized because they upset the balance. Pastors deal with criticism all the time. A few weeks ago, probably more like a month now, I was um, at a seminary, not here at another place, and there were about 20 students in the lounge at this seminary. And they're all guys and girls, and they're preparing for ministry. And I walk in, and I see an acquaintance there. I've known this guy for off and on for, for several years. And he says to me, and I'm not trying to be critical of him, I'm glad he asked me, but he goes, Hey, Clayton, you know that Perry guy, don't you? I knew. I, here's what I said to myself. Remember what happens here because this is going to be an illustration that you use at New Spring. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know him. Aren't y'all like best friends? I said, yeah, I love him like a brother and I've got his back. He said, well, tell me something. I love the accusatory tone already. Now, I'm not redneck. I'm just a little country, okay? <laughs> just a little bit. I don't dip and I don't like NASCAR, but, I, but okay, but I'm... But I, I'm, I'm like, okay, be calm, just listen, be gentle. There's never a okay, Notice this is an anecdotal story out of his life. This isn't based upon any passage that has anything to do with the pastoral office and what Christians should, you know, their attitude should be towards their pastor. Just want to make that clear. Reason to be unkind. I said, okay. He said, one of my students from my youth group's a freshman at a university locally there. They, they said that they saw Perry walking around with armed bodyguards and he never goes anywhere unless he's got armed bodyguards with guns with him. I was waiting on the punchline. I was like, that's it? You want me to explain that? He goes, yeah, explain that. I said, really? Well, for starters... That's a lie. Okay, now, I don't know if Perry Noble has armed bodyguards. 
I know that Rick Warren does because when I met with Rick Warren, I met his armed bodyguards. And he had better security than uh, presidential candidate Bob Dole did. And the reason I know that is because I worked for the Republican Party in California when Bob Dole was running for president against Bill Clinton. And he did not have as good a security, literally, as Rick Warren does. Okay, so I just want to put that out there. As for Stephen Furtick, I know Stephen Furtick has bodyguards. Whether they're armed or not, I don't know. One of them's name is Cupcake, and I happen to have, well, had a little run-in or conversation with Cupcake a few years ago. Perry doesn't travel around with armed bodyguards. Have you seen Perry Noble? He's like Goliath Satchquatch Jr. He's like nine feet tall himself. He doesn't need a bodyguard. And I know Jason Wilson and Jason Moorhead, and those guys are pretty tall, but I wouldn't necessarily call them guns. I mean, maybe maybe slingshots, maybe a BB gun. I wouldn't call them guns, you know? And I said, and man, so you've never been to New Spring? No, but one of your students has, I think. So I said, you're a 30-year-old man in ministry, and you are in front of 20 other people preparing for ministry, accusing a man of God of doing something that you do not know for a fact he has done, but you're taking an 18-year-old, 18-year-old student's word for it, and they may or may not have ever actually seen it, and you are spreading that as if it's true. Here's how I explain it to you. Number one, I said, you sinned by spreading a lie and a rumor. It's not true. Apologize to the people you've told it to. And repent to God and straighten it out. I wonder sometimes if we ever put ourselves in the position of our pastor. You know, Perry came in in a casket during his message on hell. And now I'm sure that there's a blog site somewhere dedicated to PerryNobleIsAVampire.com. It absolutely (laughs) blows my mind. They're also targets of jealousy. They're also targets for jealous, targets of jealousy. Now, this is a canard. And what I mean by that is that this is absolutely ridiculous. I don't know anybody who is a legit critic of Perry Noble who substantively, substantively critiques Perry Noble's content of his message, challenges the presuppositions and the teachings he puts forward regarding leadership, vision casting, and other things like that, that their motivation for doing that is jealousy. I, I don't know. I, I just don't know anybody who fits that mold. But this is one of their constant things. Oh, put yourself in his shoes. They're, they're just the, the reason why Perry Noble has critics is because they're just jealous. Those people want to have they want to be the ones that pass during New Spring like Perry Noble is. They're just jealous of him. That's why they're tearing him down. Hogwash. Absolutely patently false. And I understand that a lot of times people become jealous. Guys, I struggle with jealousy. Let me admit this to you and be first to do so. When I see God using people, sometimes I get jealous because I'm an extrovert. If I see people getting more attention than me, my natural inclination is to become jealous. But so many times people get jealous of the hard work that people put into what they do. They don't realize New Spring didn't pop up last night. This church has been around for a long time. And it's a lot easier to get jealous of something you don't understand. Guys, if you've ever been the subject or the the object of someone's jealousy, you know how that wears you out. Imagine if, if you as a leader had to always wonder, are people giving me the benefit of the doubt? The, the, as, as, a, as a minister myself, one of the loneliest times is when you realize that you're struggling with something 
but you don't know if you can trust the other ministers around you to even open up and share it with. Why do we kick our own brothers and sisters when they're down? Why do we shoot our own wounded? Jealousy and envy. Don't you think Israel was full of people who envied King David? Don't you think there were hundreds, if not thousands, of little Israeli boys who had grown up outside with their slings and their staffs, fighting animals, pretending to fight Philistines, hoping that one day they were chosen as the king of Israel. Can you imagine the envy that David had to feel from other people as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem as king? Most of the people loved and honored and respected him, but there was always and there will always be a kind of jealousy that sucks the life out of people when God uses them. And I'm telling you guys, it's tough. Whether you're the person who is jealous or whether you're the object of their jealousy. But not only are pastors targets, pastors are also under attack. I want you to turn to Psalm 96 with me. Pastors are under attack. Psalm 96. I said 96. Psalm 69. I'm dyslexic or lysdexic. Psalm 69. Listen to the kind of attack that David had to obviously be under to have written these words. Now, folks, these are the words of a man on the edge of a cliff. Save me, O God. This is King David speaking. For the waters have come up to my neck. He's about to drown. I sink in the miry depths. And there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. He can't breathe. He's under so much pressure and stress that he's crying out to God in absolute desperation. And by the way, this has nothing to do with a seeker-driven pastor receiving criticism for their shenanigans, Bible-twisting, and other things by bloggers. Just want to make sure that that David isn't writing this because of the terror in his soul by a bunch of jealous bloggers out there. And by, again, notice he keeps likening Perry Noble to King David. Unbelievable. I am worn out, verse 3, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. Not only was David under attack by losing friendships but he also felt isolated from God. So folks, everything that you've ever felt, every night of loneliness, every bit of confusion and worry, every time of uncertainty about your future, every time that you were afraid you had offended a coworker or a friend or even maybe a mate or, or, a, or somebody in your family, every emotion that you've ever been through, your pastor goes through it. Every time you've ever felt abandoned by God, your pastor has felt abandoned by God. Everything we've ever felt, our leaders... Again, how does this prove that it's our responsibility as sheep to protect a shepherd? Hmm? Feel them too. David, a man after God's own heart, did not even believe that God was still there. My eyes fail me from looking for God. I can't find him. Where is he? There is a dark night of the soul and a deep desperation that pastors go through. And God uses that to teach us dependence upon his Holy Spirit. But I'm telling you what gets us through those times, folks. 
knowing that we are part of a family that's got our back. That's what gets us through. Oh, one more verse. Uh, let me read another passage. Reread one. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. The Apostle Paul talking to the, the elders of the church of Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So the the admonition here is for the overseers to guard the flock against the wolves. Paul didn't say here, now, you sheep, you need to make sure that you grow some very fierce teeth and you fight off those wolves who are trying to attack your pastor. Yet that's exactly the case that Clayton King is trying to make here. First, listen to what David says about his enemies. Those who hate me without reason outnumbers, outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. These phrases really hurt. Hate me without reason and enemies without cause. And Perry Noble is not somebody who has critics without cause. You yourself said it, Clayton. Here's again what you said. You can't say some of the things that Perry says and not expect to get criticized, but it's amazing. Right, exactly. So sitting here and saying, oh, poor Perry Noble, he's being criticized without cause. He has enemies because he's just innocent. What a load of scubalon. Absolute bovine scatology. This is not true at all about Perry Noble. Out cause. Pastors are under attack. Number one, physical exhaustion. Physical exhaustion. Do you hear the exhaustion in David's voice in Psalm 69? Don't you hear it? I'm worn out. My eyes fail me. My, my throat is parched. Physical exhaustion. I'll drive home tonight, and by the time I get back to my house, I won't be able to speak. I will be so, my throat will be so exhausted from preaching four times today. I'll be physically worn out. But on top of the physical exhaustion comes emotional drain. There's physical exhaustion that no one can understand unless they've been there. But there's also emotional drain because, and I've done some research on this, things happen when you are in the public eye that do not happen to people who work in a more private type of, of vocation. Um, it's called adrenaline. Now remember, physical exhaustion and emotional drain, they go hand in hand. They lock together. I've um, been doing this for a long time, and I started noticing a few years ago I couldn't sleep. And um, I don't think I require as much sleep as most people. My wife has to have eight hours of sleep. If my wife doesn't have eight hours of sleep, the planet ceases to spin in its orbit around the sun. Some of y'all women and some of you men are like that too, aren't you? Now me, I just drink coffee. If I don't get enough sleep, I just drink coffee and I become real spiritual and, and real alive really fast. But if my wife drinks coffee, her face breaks out and she turns into Satan's bride, okay? Caffeine affects her in a negative way. She knows that, by the way. I love you, honey. Ah. See, what happens is, what happens is I, I start noticing I can't go to sleep, especially after I get done preaching. 
And I do this 200 times a year. I'm all over the place and I can't sleep. So I try everything. I try hot milk. That's nasty. Who in the world ever said warm milk could put you to sleep? Warm milk will make you puke. Bam! Gag a maggot. So I tried eating lettuce. Apparently that's supposed to work. I tried all these natural things. I took melatonin. Yeah, it doesn't work. Then I, I tried I tried pills like Tylenol PM, Advil PM, Lunesta, Ambien. I even tried drinking a half a bottle of NyQuil one night. You know, NyQuil, it's supposed to work. The nighttime sniffling, sneezing, coughing, aching, stuffy head fever, how in the world did I wind up naked and unconscious in the bathtub medicine? I'm just saying. And that didn't even work. I'm like, why can't I go to sleep? And, um, and so I started, I got, I'm really fascinated with adrenaline because I used to be a skydiver and I had to quit for various reasons. Um, my insurance company was going to drop my health insurance policy once they found out I was jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. And, and so I had to quit, but I started getting fascinated with adrenaline. So I, I figured out how to use the internet. And um, it's really going to catch on, by the way. I'm telling you, this internet thing, invest in it because it is the wave of the future. So anyway, I, I started doing some research and I found out that the University of Michigan did a 10-year study along with other studies, multiple studies I don't have time to go into, and they figured out what adrenaline does to you. Adrenaline is a, is a, is a chemical that our bodies produce and they produce massive amounts when traumatic, good or bad, things happen to us. And let me tell you what I learned about adrenaline. This is amazing. 30 minutes of public speaking has the exact equivalent effect of an eight-hour physically exhausting workday. So every time someone speaks to a crowd of 20 or 20,000, doesn't matter the number, public speaking, 30 minutes is the equivalent of working an eight-hour day. This is my fourth sermon today. So 45 minutes of sermon times four. I've preached three hours today. Three hours is the equivalent of, well, I can't do the math because math is a tool of Satan to destroy the universe. But you get the picture, right? If I preach three hours today, that's the equivalent of me working more than an entire work week. So the adrenaline kicks in. Here's what happens to me. I'm just giving you all a little insight into my life. You know, it, it, it used to be absolutely, uh, absolutely unspoken for pastors to confess their struggles. But now pastors are talking about it. They're writing books on it. Craig Rochelle just wrote one called Confessions of a Pastor. Mark Driscoll wrote one called Confessions of a Reformation Rev. Maybe this is my little confession. Right before I come out on the stage, I stand back here. And I go out there and y'all have a coffee shop now, which by the way, I just want y'all to know, part of being your teaching pastor, I get free coffee and I take advantage of it. So I'm drinking coffee, you know, hot, cold, hot, cold, in between every service, before services, after service. And I'm really excited because I get to preach at my favorite church. And I'm backstage and the adrenaline's kicking and my hands are doing like this. And, I'm, and my head's starting to tingle and I'm starting to see like things. <laughs> N.E.M. Toto, a twister, a twister. I get really excited. And then I come out, the, the adrenaline's pumping. Then I come out here. One shot of adrenaline, one shot of adrenaline stays in the human body for four hours. I get probably six good shots of adrenaline during every sermon. If I say something clever and people laugh, I get a shot of adrenaline. If I get really into thank you for the... Just a reminder, this is not biblical what he's teaching. This is just, I don't know where he's getting this, but he's not actually teaching us anything about what the Bible says about our need as sheep to protect pastors. The courtesy laugh. That's not a shot. 
That's kind of like, uh, I don't know, a little taste right there, but thank you. Now that's a shot. Come on. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> See the adrenaline. <laughs> to hold a crowd's attention requires this kind of stuff. And then if I, if I get to an illustration that's personal, the adrenaline kicks in. My heart beats fast. If I get five good shots of adrenaline during a sermon, that's 20 hours. 20 hours before that adrenaline wears off in my system. That's why I can't sleep. Perry has preached the last 11 weeks in a row. Four services every Sunday. 44 sermons in 11 weeks. Over 800 people saved. Over $13 million raised. Folks, put yourself in his shoes. Don't walk out of here going, well, what about me? Don't I work hard? Yes, you work hard. I don't recall King David ever complaining about how hard he worked. Yes, you have struggles and stress like every other person, but they're all different. I'm just trying to tell you what a pastor goes through. Under attack, physical and emotional, and also, guys, spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. If there is a devil, and I'm sure there is, because the scripture teaches that there is, then there are a few things I know about that devil. That devil hates Jesus. He hates anything that looks like Jesus or reminds him of Jesus. He hates the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. He hates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he hates the people of Jesus Christ. And if the devil is smart, which I'm sure he is, because youth and cunning, to quote one of the ancient philosophers, are never a match for age and treachery. If the devil is smart, I'm sure he's figured out what most of us grown-ups have figured out, and that is you can work harder or you can work smarter. It makes sense to work smarter instead of harder. Don't you think the devil is gunning for the people in prominent positions of leadership? Because he can work a lot smarter by taking them out. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with it? Of course there's... Of course there's struggles. Of course there's temptation. Of course there's a target. Of course they're under attack. Well, what do we do? Let's finish up this passage of Scripture. I love this. Verse 18. We're going to get to some funny name dudes here. Abishai. Now, again, this passage has nothing to do with what you need to be doing or your attitude towards your pastor. This is not what this text is about at all. Don't ever name your kid Abishai, by the way. I don't think God's calling you to name your child Abishai. If you name your child Abishai, they'll grow up with issues because kids at elementary school make fun of them. Abishai, Babishai, Bobabishai, Banana Nana Fof, Abishai, just don't do it. They'll be on Oprah on the couch bawling their eyes out before they're 20 years old and it'll be your fault for naming them Abishai. I'm just, just trying. Okay. Verse 18, Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. I love this. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. I love the way the writer just throws that in there. Not only did he fight 300 men, he killed them. He took them out. He busted a sideways cap. I love this. And so he became famous as the three. 
Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander even though he was not included among them. This whole story is about men who were fiercely loyal to their leader. But it- That's right, and he killed 300 men. So are you fiercely loyal to Perry Noble? How many have, of his enemies have you taken out? It gets really good in verse 20. Now, if you have not been paying attention, you better sit up straight now because this junk is good. Benaiah, son of Jehoadiah, was a valiant fighter from Kazbiel. Sounds like a place in some sort of hobbit village, Kabziel, who performed great exploits. Now, this is not a fairy tale written by J.R.R. Tolkien. This happened, and it's recorded in Scripture. Listen to what Benaiah does. This guy is obviously drinking an energy drink. He struck down not one, but two of Moab's best men. Why is that important? Because the Moabites had a reputation of being the fiercest, dirtiest, most bloodthirsty men alive at that time. So he killed two of them. Oh, he's just getting warmed up. He also, this, this, this could not be made up. This is just so bizarre. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Hello! Are y'all reading what I'm reading? To quote Jerry Maguire, you had me at kill the lion. You didn't have to tell me he killed him in a pit and it was snowing. Most of us would have been inside sipping hot chocolate saying, it's a little cold out there, but not Benaiah. What kind of psycho Billy Ninja walks up to a pit and says, there's a lion in there and it's snowing. What should I do? Take a nap, have a snack, run away, or kill the lion. I'm going to kill the lion. He jumps in a pit in the snow. So how many pits in the snow have you jumped in to kill those lions who are trying to take out Perry Noble, your pastor? And he kills a lion. That is the junk that killed Elvis Presley right there. This guy, he did it. He did it. He killed Elvis. He killed Jesse James. He killed Hitler. He killed Tupac. He took them all out. This guy right here. Oh, my goodness. But it's not done yet. I'm telling you guys, this is good stuff. And verse 21, I love this. And, and. He struck down a huge Egyptian. Look, he struck down a huge Egyptian, not a medium-sized one. No. How many huge Egyptian critics of Perry Noble have you taken out? Oh, a big one, one on steroids, one who has taken human growth hormone, one who was raised on cornbread and pinto beans, a huge Egyptian. But then, but then he tells us how he did it. Oh, I, oh, I love this. Why am I squatting like that? I don't know. <laughs> listen, although the Egyptian, listen, this is so good. Listen, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. I love this. Benaiah went against him with a club. Benaiah was so bad to the bone, he brought a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> then what does he do? He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Not only did he bring a knife to a gunfight, 
he brought a knife to a gunfight, took the gun from his enemy, and killed him. Like, this guy is absolutely amazing. And he's not even one of the three mighty men. But what happens as a result of this? Such were the exploits of Benaiah, the son of Jehoadiah. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And then one little obscure sentence. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Good call, David. You couldn't have picked a better guy in all of Israel than Benaiah. Because this guy will absolutely lay the smack down on anybody. What's our final point tonight? What do we close? How many people have you laid the smack down on who are critical and enemies of Perry Noble? Close out with, what can I leave you with to teach and to reinforce how you protect your pastor? Pastors need people they can trust. Pastors need people that they know will get their back. They can go through all sorts of torturous torment if they know they've got people they can trust in and that get their back. You know, I talk to Perry all the time. You know, he tells me when we talk how much he loves you, how, how, how he is the luckiest, most blessed man alive to get to serve in this church, that he would lay his life down for you, that he doesn't want to go anywhere else. Perry turns down. You have no idea. Perry could become independently wealthy by simply doing what I do. Perry could make a million times more money than me because of his name and his reputation. But he turns down 99% of all speaking engagements because he can't stand to be away from New Spring. He was supposed to be in Charlotte this morning. I spent the night with some friends in Anderson. This morning my cell phone rang at 8 o'clock and Perry's name came up. I looked at my wife and I said, it's Perry. She said, at me in Charlotte, I said, I bet he's at New Spring. Perry had the day off. I'm preaching today. And he showed up here at 745 this morning. And I said, what are you doing at New Spring? He goes, man, like I'm going to miss a day at the greatest church in the world. Wow. Do you know why he thinks like that? Because he's got the greatest church in the world. Because you got his back. Because he can trust you. You got to be the real deal for the king to say, I want you to be my bodyguard. Now, how do we do that? How do we defend? How do we pray? How do we do this kind of stuff? Well, first of all, we got to learn that if God hasn't called us into those kind of leadership positions, then he's at least called us to support those people. Three quick ideas. Number Number one, pastors have to know that they can trust us to pray for them, to lift them up to God. God does not use our personalities. This church, Perry will be the first one to tell you, this church is not successful because he's the pastor. This church is successful because Jesus Christ is here. His Holy Spirit is moving and you still preach the gospel at New Spring. That's why. So what we need as pastors and as ministers, we need you to fall on your knees and pray for us. Go to battle for us. Go to war. Wage war on the devil for us. When you gather together as a family and you got your kids with you for a meal, teach your children to pray for your staff here by name. Teach them to pray for them by name. Every day I pray for my friends. I pray for Perry. I pray for Stephen. I pray for JD. I pray for Matt. I pray for Jonathan. I pray for my friends every day. Get their back by falling on your knees and praying for them. Uh, Number two, understand their lives. Understand their lives. Know that their lives are different from yours. I love what I do and I'm not complaining. I wouldn't trade my life for yours any day of the week. But if you're not called to be an itinerant speaker, then there's no way in the world that you would ever want to travel 250,000 miles a year in an airplane. But I love it. See, we're, 
We, we have to understand each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt. About a year ago before uh, Karis was born, I came up to preach and I came up early so I could spend the night with Perry and Lucretia. We went out to eat at a great restaurant here in, in uh, Anderson. And this just kind of gives you some insight. We walked in and before we ever sat down, Perry had stopped to talk to five people. A meal that would normally take an hour took us over two. Why? Because Perry loves people. But here's where we need to understand the life of our pastor. When a leader is called to lead, they lose some of that anonymity and privacy that the rest of us enjoy. I can walk into Walmart at Anderson and I can go buy, you know, the new Bruce Springsteen CD, which by the way is excellent. And nobody's going to stop me and talk to me. Perry walks in and it takes him two hours to get a roll of toilet paper. Understand their lives. People would come in and sit down and we'd be eating and Perry would go, oh, I've been praying for that guy. Let me go say hey to him. He'd get up and go say hey. Oh, I know that guy. He just started coming to New Spring. Let me go meet his family. And he did that. Why? Because a pastor has the, she- has the shepherd's heart, right? So understand a pastor's life and realize that their life is different from yours like yours is different from mine like mine is different from... Do you understand? We're just not the same. It doesn't mean that we're better. It just means that God's given us different callings. Benaiah understood that what David needed most was not a critic after every single battle saying, you should have done this, you should have done that. What David needed most was friends he could count on. And finally, guys, last but not least, let me wrap this up with a strong finish. Our pastors and our leaders need people they can trust to defend them. Okay, let me read from the notes. By the way, he gave this exact same message at the uh, at the uh, Unleashed conference the next year, okay? And point number three for him was not just defend your pastor, but be a pit bull. You gotta be a pit bull. We continue. To defend them. Yeah, it's not just because I'm from the South, but you didn't talk smack about my mom when I was growing up. I will not let people talk about my wife I will not let people talk about my children and I will not let people talk about my friends. I will defend them because folks. And so it doesn't matter what your pastor says. You got to be loyal and defend him and don't let anybody say anything negative about him. I want to say this with clarity. Okay. If you're in a church and you cannot defend the integrity of your church or your pastor, then you either need to try to correct whatever issue there is or you need to leave that church. I'll say it again. If I do not believe in the integrity of my church and my pastor, what am I doing there? I want to defend the people that I love. And David called Benaiah to be his chief bodyguard because Benaiah had proven that he could be trusted to defend the king. And and David is not a pastor in that sense, and your pastor is not King David. And nowhere is the office of Benaiah set up as the office of being the bodyguard of the pastor. This passage has nothing to do with the pastoral office. Absolutely nothing. One of the great things that sets you apart as a church is that you let God be God, but you also understand that the goal is not to burn a pastor out. The goal is to build the kingdom. And the kingdom is built better when everybody involved is healthy, especially the pastor. 
We have the uh, Cleveland County Fair where I live in Cleveland County, North Carolina. I am aware that you also have an Anderson County Fair. I think you probably have some of the same goodies that we have. Fried Snickers. Deep fried Kit Kats. Do y'all have those? How about funnel cakes? How about the demolition derby? Oh yes, old cars with men crashing into each other at high speeds and velocities. It just doesn't get any better than that. About two weeks ago, the Cleveland County Fair opened up and the very first night they had the demolition derby and my five-year-old son, who is already addicted to testosterone and adrenaline, was absolutely in fuego. That means on fire. Para mis familias que hablan la lengua de español. Por supuesto. Yo tengo. No, thank, no, no, never mind, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Y'all are too much fun. So my son was all excited about going. We got to the demolition derby. We watched a couple of rounds. And he said, Daddy, I'm bored. Can we go ride that? And there's a big old Ferris wheel out there. And I said, sure. So we walk out of the grandstands. I understand Cleveland County, North Carolina is my home. And a lot of people know me there. So I walk in. And before we ever even got to the demolition derby, I got stopped by 12 people. Hey, Clayton this. Hey, Clayton that. And I'm talking to them because I love people. and I'm extrovert. I, I, I like to find out how people are doing and what's going on in their lives. And so already my son is growing impatient with me. Because it's supposed to be our night, you know? So we leave the demolition derby and we go out the gate to go to the big Ferris wheel. And I bump into a youth group. And they knew me and I knew them. So we start talking. Well, my son's had it. He's exasperated at this point. Five years old. Five-year-olds are not known for their volumes of patience. He begins to yank on my arm, almost jerking it out of the shoulder socket. Come on! I'm tired of waiting! And I'm like, be quiet, hush, just wait, be patient. I don't want to wait. And I'm thinking, your mama raised you this way. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. That is a joke. Thank you. Thank you for the courtesy laugh. So I'm sitting there talking to this youth group, and my son goes from literally trying to pull my arm out of the socket to absolute despair. Here's what happened. He just deflated. He just went. He let go of my arm and he just dropped his hands to his side. And I saw him do this and it made an impression on my heart. He did this. He said, Daddy, why do you always ignore me when you're talking to other people? His bottom lip started quivering. And the Holy Spirit assaulted me with high-powered weapons. When my son said that, and I looked at the youth group, I said, hey guys, it was good to see y'all. I got to go. And I fell on my knees in front of my child and I looked him straight in the eyes and I said, Jacob, I'm sorry, buddy. I didn't know I was ignoring you. I guess I do that to you all the time, don't I? I'll try not to do that anymore. Will you forgive me if I promise I'll try to be a better daddy? See, my son does not care how many people I preach to. My son doesn't care how many invitations a year I get. 
Karis doesn't care how big New Spring is. She needs her daddy. My wife does not care how many people show up to hear me at Clemson SCA. My wife cares if she's got a husband that loves her and is committed to her. And so for me, I will not be another statistic. And Perry will not be another statistic. And Jason won't be. And Paul won't be. And Lee won't be. And in the name of Jesus, every pastor that God's using in this country, if they have a church that understands their lives and enables them to be healthy and to be connected to the vine of Jesus Christ and to be good dads and good husbands, we'll see the kingdom of God come and His will be done on this earth like it is in heaven. If we'll continue to get their back, to love them, to defend them, to honor them, and to protect them. In Jesus' name, New Spring, you keep doing what you're doing, and you have only seen the beginning. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that we would be as committed to defending... Okay, done. Sorry, I won't let him pray. So there you go. So... It's now the job of the sheep to protect the shepherd. That's the bottom line. And the biblical text that he used to make this point has absolutely nothing to do with the pastoral office. Absolutely nothing. But it turns Perry Noble into King David. And you have the job of being his bodyguard, being like Benaiah and killing a a lion in a snowy pit. You know, and those would be bloggers and critics. And don't you let people say anything negative about your pastor. This isn't biblical. This is a completely alien, foreign, I'll say it, satanic leadership model. This is not the pastoral model laid out by by Jesus, the one who washed the feet of his disciples, the one who said that you will not be like the Gentiles lording and ruling over People, this is the exact opposite of that. And believe me, this is extremely dangerous. And it needs to be exposed, brought into the light, and biblically rebuked and gotten rid of. Because Perry Noble is not a pastor in the biblical sense. He's a furor in the real historical sense of what that word means. And I stand by what I say. So what'd you think? We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.